Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. I'm going to start today's episode with a short interview with my good friend Ben Bishop about his fantastic new podcast, Faith and Letters. If you're not interested in that, that's fine. You can skip ahead about seven minutes. Okay, Ben Bishop, thank you for joining me for a little mini interview here. You uh, have launched and have actually just finished up the first season of your podcast, Faith and Letters. It is about the overlap of Christianity and basically the writing life, various kinds of writing. It's something that I have been involved with you in terms of like figuring out what your podcast would be about. I think you settled on something great. I'm excited that it's out there. I've been enjoying it myself. I just wanted to talk to you for a few minutes about it and let people know that this thing is out there. My first question for you is why the combination of faith and writing in particular? Faith and writing are both central to my life. Things that I'm really interested in, really invested in, spend a lot of time thinking about and or engaged with. So actually, per your suggestion, I think it's fair to say that you encouraged me to do something around writing uh, because you knew that that was true and also because it would be sort of a natural dovetailing with my actual writing career and, and maybe go hand in glove with that. I ended up doing it. And yeah, it's been, I've, I've not regretted that choice. I considered and invested a lot of time in uh, an entire season that was going to be about Christian music, which I just ended up canning. And I don't regret canning that, but it just, <laughs> it, it took me a while to get to the point where I, where I accepted that, uh, this would be a good idea. And yeah, it's been an enjoyable first season. Has anybody emailed you and said, Man, this is so good. I feel like this is good enough. 
that maybe you did a whole other show first and <laughs> learned a bunch of lessons and canned it? Like that's how good it is? Has anybody picked up on that quality? No, no. Nobody's emailed me and said, gosh, it's almost like you burned several other people by asking them to give you an hour of your time. And some of them were mildly frustrated or just simply didn't respond when you emailed apologizing. And you learned a lot from that and have now made a subsequently stronger podcast. No, I, nobody's, nobody sent that to me. Uh, well, a boy can hope. Um, so if people listen to the show, you know, just give us a, give me two, three sentences on what they can expect to hear. What like faith and letters. That's interesting. But like, Maybe give us an example of kind of your angle on that or what you find most interesting about that overlap. Yeah, I honestly have been thinking back on the season now that it's nearing its conclusion or has concluded by the time that this will go live and trying to figure out if it was maybe an overly broad net that I cast because some of the interviews have been, you know, pretty much straight up examinations of an actual book that somebody wrote. Uh, Chris Hoke, a guy named Chris Hoke, had a, an incredible memoir about his time as a gang pastor and jail chaplain. And, you know, in interviews like that, we're really just talking about the book. We're talking about his own personal faith journey. We're talking about his work. We're also talking about craft to some extent. So there is there is a thread of craft the writing craft and practice that runs through the show. There's also, you know, certainly the the broadest thread or stream that runs through the show is, is talking about various aspects of faith. Those are sort of in not intention, but very different things. So you, you can expect to get, depending on the episode, a little of both. Um, and as you just scroll through, you'll see that the episodes are with people who've engaged in pretty different projects, but you'll right. generally hear me talking with people about the, the actual craft and practice of writing. And then, uh, to some extent about their ideas, the ideas in their books or in their work and how that relates to, a you know, big tent kind of broad conception of Christianity. Something that I've realized also, and I'll just say in conclusion to answering that question that I, that I didn't really ever get too explicit with myself about, but that seems undeniably true is that my own childhood and my own experience growing up in the church, my inheritance uh, in terms of the version of Christianity that was given to me has come up a lot. I've referenced it in a lot of these interviews and it's something that has been, it's, it's very much there. I don't know if it would be more helpful in the future to somehow get more explicit about that, but it's, I think to some extent, simply because of the fact that I grew up in what you might think of as a kind of classic 1980s, 1990s, middle American evangelical Christian context that the show, you know, might be certainly not only for people like that, but additionally interesting for people who also share some understanding of that background, uh, or at the very least, uh, you know, people can know that it's, you know, it's colored by that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. As this show is as well. Um, so the, the season is just wrapping up. I will say, I think for listeners of this show, the interview with Daniel Taylor on his book, The Myth of Certainty, a book that uh, I really loved and loved it so much that I sent you a copy of it. Yes. Um, I think that that would be a good place to start. That's probably maybe the closest to you have permission and people can go from there. Also, Chris Hoke, uh, a mutual friend of ours, he's been on Depolarize 
And uh, I haven't gotten him on You Have Permission yet, but he'll be on here eventually. Oh, no, he was. He was on the, the Jean Vanier episode. So uh, yeah, with him and Jennifer. That's right. So you have an uh, interview with him. Also, Danielle Mayfield, who's been on Depolarize. And I think she's been on some patron episodes of You Have Permission. So there's some overlap there. Um, the final episode of the season is you and I talking a little bit how the sausage gets made. So a little bit less about writing, a bit more about podcasting. Yeah. Um, but but similar, like a lot of craft around it. So sometimes people are curious, you know, the way that I think and other podcasters think about making this stuff. We just did an hour on that and I, it was really fun. And so people can go check that out. That would be the most recent episode. I just want to say, I think that you are a very good interviewer. I think you ask really interesting questions. And that's the main reason that I would recommend the show to people that find anything interesting about that combo of faith and writing. So Ben, thank you for joining me for a few minutes here and just giving us a little look into uh, your, your project. Of course, buddy. Thanks. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. All right, Dr. Greg Kutsona, glad to have you back. Thank you for uh, pestering is the wrong word, but gently prodding me on this question of how sometimes our conversation about hell and universal salvation actually sounds imperialistic if we mm. have a more global understanding. And I just thought, well, that's you. I don't care how recently you were on the, the show. We have to do that show. So that's what we're doing. <laughs> So a little roadmap here. People, first of all, they remember you from just a couple months ago, young adults' views of, of science and faith, your recent guest. I won't do a whole intro because we had it there. But basically, we're going to do about an hour. If we have 90 minutes here, we're going to do the first hour on hell and the afterlife in all these other sort of religious and non-religious traditions around the world and through time. And then we're going to use that as a context to have an, about a half hour of conversation about your thoughts less as a scholar of world religions and more as a Christian theologian about how, given that context, maybe we're not bringing all the right tools to bear as Christian thinkers on the question of hell and especially kind of a soft universalism that you have found very prevalent in certain sectors. Does that sound good? That sounds great. And Dan, let me just give you props. I just love this program, this podcast. Ever okay. since I met you, it was like, I don't know, less than a year ago, I started listening and I, I honestly can't stop. So uh, well, I appreciate it's that. really, really good to be part of it. You're Thanks not going to get more, you're not going to get more guest spots by buttering me up though. So <laughs> but last time you buttered me up and got me ready. So I'm just trying to turn the tables here. Mutual buttering. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the, the first question is, 
and this is a devil's advocate, but but frankly, I don't even know. I don't know how I would answer it. And you have so much more knowledge around this. Why does it matter at all what other religious traditions think about the afterlife? How would you answer that question? I think it's what I hear sometimes in the motivation to go toward Christian universalism. I've heard this conversation a number of times. I think it was a little bit in your conversation with Josh about uh, youth ministry where it goes something like, you know, I live in a world or my high school students or my college students live in a world with a lot of perspectives, uh, including a lot of religious ones. And because of that, because of that pluralism, I can't believe in hell anymore. And I have had to, I moved toward a universalist perspective. So I think that's, that's what got me motivated. And then I thought to myself, well, in a way we got to read the room. So hmm. if I can give a little analogy, I love certain sports. I'm not an NHL you know, hockey fan, right? But I can imagine NHL fan coming into, I don't know, my office or a party if there was such a thing in COVID world and saying, oh, Greg, I know you're a sports fan. And I know there's a lot of concern about whether sports will happen and whether you can cheer on your sports team. But here's what NHL is doing. You can record your cheers and your boos, and they'll play them during the games. And I'm kind of like, I don't really care. Like, I don't really care about a hockey game. It's just not something that's part of my world. And so in various contexts I'm in, I don't think people really care whether there's a heaven or a hell. I mean, it might be interesting as an ancillary, you know, here's something that Christians talk about and, a whole lot of Christians in the United States, but it doesn't really affect my life personally. So I think it's making sure when we do put out a Christian universalist position that we're really listening to the people we're talking to. Okay, that's interesting. So there's two versions of that conversation. And of course, a podcast, you can't choose who listens to it. It's publicly available. But we might say there are two different conversations for two different audiences. One conversation, which is generally the one that I, I think that I think I'm having, that I believe I'm having at the time is a conversation about universalism and hell for Christians who have grown very tired of whatever version of it they were taught. And usually I can pretty well summarize that version after one or two questions. And I do know the room in that sense. Right. And in, in that audience, the outlier is the person who was not raised to believe in eternal conscious torment. And in that conversation, you, you listened back to the Brad Jersek the argument right. for universal salvation from last fall. And where I would agree with Brad is the problem is mainly in the lack of any sort of justice or uh, proportionality in the punishment, right? That's sort of the, the number one problem with that view. But there's a other conversation, which is especially people who are doing public theological work, right? They're not just preaching in, at their own church, for instance, they're doing published work that anybody can read. And so maybe a podcast ought to be more in this second camp. Well, now we're making an argument for basically anybody. We're making an argument about the true things in the world of God, etc. And if we don't have context of how people in other religious and non-religious traditions think about these things, then what people will pick up on is, oh, they're simply having an internal conversation. The example I always go to in my head, and I sometimes will say it aloud, is like, Somewhere right now, there are two or three Muslim men in Iran debating the finer points of Islamic law as it relates to meat production. Mm -hmm. And I just don't give a shit about that. <laughs> I, it just means nothing to me. I don't feel like it's fine. Like uh, more power to him. I don't feel like I need to care what 
Islamic law says about meat production. And yet there are people very earnestly debating this. And a lot of times I think, you know what? I don't want to be the sort of Christian version of that guy doing something that is like if like if it's helping people get out of trauma or, you know, get through to a different kind of their faith, then I'm all for it. And that's at their best. That's what these conversations do for the inter Christian audience. But at their worst, we're just arguing about meat production laws that only apply to certain people who already have these things and, and probably have no bearing on reality. And that's a great, you know, I think uh, way of looking at those two kinds of conversations. And in fact, a little bit of my own world where I served in the church for 18 years, I'm an ordained Presbyterian pastor, and now I am a lecturer in comparative religion and humanities at a secular university. So those two things, I mean, I have both those conversations in my head. And I guess, Dan, maybe you could help me with this too, is what I think is interesting is when I hear conversations about universalism and rejecting hell as eternal conscious torment, which we'll use for hell for now, right? I hear an undercurrent as, well, we're just a little bit more sensitive than these infernalists. We're a little bit more thoughtful than that group. I'm not necessarily applying that to your conversations, but in the ones I've had. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think you're totally right. I think it's psychological, frankly. I think that liberals just do that. I think you even see it in the psychological literature. A lot of these models that research psychologists will put forward about flourishing lives in one way or another, you know, there are any number of these sort of models or, you know, like there's the Maslow's hierarchy. I'm talking about things like that. There's hundreds right. of these, right? That, right. And a lot of them, frankly, to me, sometimes feel like the higher you get on whatever pyramid you're talking about, the more you look like an urban progressivist. Right. You know, like not all of it, but there are aspects of it. Like you'll be more open to new experiences. Well, we know that people who are constitutionally conservative and temperamentally conservative, their brain is wired such that they don't really like new experiences. And I'm the opposite. I am temperamentally liberal. I love new experiences. If there were no carbon emissions, I would fly abroad every chance I got. That's the only thing that keeps me from traveling every time I can. (laughs) Right. Well, now a, a child as well. But before our kid, like we would just go all the time, but I'm wired that way. I don't want to pathologize being conservative. Right. So, uh, yes, if well-credentialed, well-meaning and scrupulous psychological researchers can occasionally fall into this trap, certainly a bunch of know-nothing podcasters (laughs) and theologians who don't know nothing uh, can fall into a similar trap. Of of course, that's got to be true. Yeah, well, that's good. That's good to hear. I mean, that I'm not like, uh, I don't know, in my own little world thinking about that. But I remember I picked up some slides from one of my colleagues when I got a class assigned to me pretty late in the game, like a couple of weeks before I was teaching. This is the introduction to religion. And the end of the slides had, so what do you now say about all these religions? And it had, there's the exclusivist model, the inclusivist model, and the pluralist model. And clearly the pluralist was the best. In other words, we're not going to say any of these ways are the best. It, it wasn't necessarily all ways lead to God, but let's affirm all these ways. And I had to alter those after I used them for a couple of semesters because I realized that I think it's not quite honest, to, to be frank. Like, I think what we all do is we say the last one is really the best, and the last one is actually usually in some ways an inclusivist model. So I changed that around. Like, I put it to there's the you know, exclusivist, there's the pluralist or relativist, how you want to call it, and then there's the inclusivist. Because 
even like you're saying, if your big system that encompasses all other systems is to be open to any system, that itself is a system, right? So you're including everything in that. And that's a little bit of what I'm concerned about in the language about Christian universalism is, wow, we're still setting up these categories. We're still imposing categories on the conversation of heaven, hell, Christ. And if we really want to listen to what other people are talking about, we need to be much more open to what they're actually thinking and and what categories they're bringing. But when I teach my class in death, dying, and the afterlife at Cal State Chico, you know, I'll tell people about how Christians believe, and certainly people of Christian background or Christian experience will resonate. But some people are like, well, Christians are just really too worried about death. You know, there's other ways to look at this where there's life and there's death and, you know, the end of it's fine. It's just the end. It's not like some big thing is going to happen after we die. So I think it's yeah. just reading the room, getting a sense of what we're talking about as we bring this conversation forward and not sort of, you know, smuggling in a little bit of what's actually the best view to be had. That's great. I mean, one thing that I try to do, but I'm sure I don't always do it. But, you know, I'm even aware of sort of comparing this to other progressive podcasters that I like and listen to or or have listened to and don't like or whatever, is I try to be very clear about what arguments we are affirming or rejecting and not do a sort of bland, use the word relativism. Like where I'm at now is certainly no one goes to hell. (laughs) Just Mm -hmm. cards on the table. Certainly no one goes to hell forever. If there is, like, I just really hope consciousness continues. I'm just really hoping so. And if it does, it will be just. Mm -hmm. And it will not include eternal conscious torment. It might include passing through the fire, as Paul says. It may include a judgment day. It may include justice being made for wrongs done, maybe in a punitive way. I would guess probably more in a restorative kind of a way, but I don't know for sure. So that's where I try to be like, I'm really clear against eternal conscious torment. This is a unhelpful thing. It leads to it's a bad motivator for the most part for like in-group loyalty and out-group bias and and like unnecessarily guilt and anxiety disorders. You know, you know fill it all out. Fill it all out. Right. And then with pluralism, I, I genuinely am convinced of like a robust pluralism a la John Cobb and other kind of process thinkers. But try to be very careful about it and in a non-imperialistic way. Not say – like, for instance, I think that religious pluralism done well is much better than the sort of perennial philosophy of Aldous Huxley and others that say, well, I know what it really is. All these religions are synthesized into this thing, which I will now explain to you. Like, that is – that's imperial and actually is uh, not sufficiently intellectually humble and honest, mm-hmm. I think. But I mean, I'm I'm curious your thoughts, but I'll stop talking about that and just point people back to the episode. Do Muslims, Jews and Christians worship the same God uh, with Andrew Schwartz? We went into great depth on that question. So if you haven't listened to that and you're interested, that's the place. But please respond if you'd like. Well, I think that's a great interview, by the way. I loved it. And this is going to be warning. A compliment is coming. So uh, I think that's one of the things that makes you a good interviewer is you're really clear about your positions and to what degree you have assurance of what you actually think and you're really open to me that's really good pluralism 
I'm just I mean, going to call you in the middle of other interviews, Greg, and have you just pop in for a quick compliment if I'm feeling yeah. down. Or just record that little bit and you can play it every once in yes. a while, right? Oh, it'll be a little soundbite. I, I can like hit right. the drum pad on the drum machine, right? right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, go back to my uh, pluralistic setting that I'm in. And, and let me say at California State Chico, I, I forget if I mentioned this in the last podcast, but I've done surveys with, I think it's almost uh, 16 or 1700 students, faculty, and staff. And wow about where what their religious affiliation is, uh, among other things, and how that correlates with certain issues like gun control or marijuana use or whatever. And we, just the point here is we found that about 45% of Chico State is would identify as Christian. So it's a lot, it's lower than the national average. Yeah, but, but it's not pretty good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's I would have thought high. 30%. You know yeah, I mean? yeah. So that just gives you the context. And I think there weren't any more nuns or not religiously affiliating. There were a few other kinds of philosophies that were represented. Yeah. Um, so that's the context that I go in. And when I come into a classroom, like I'm going to start in a few weeks online with introduction to religion. And I will often say, I come at this as a person who's committed following Jesus Christ as a Christian. And I want you to understand that. And I also want you to understand that I teach wanting a Muslim to be shaking their head in agreement when I talk about Islam. I want a person who's a neo-pagan to be shaking their head in agreement if uh, I'm talking about neo-paganism. By the way, this is drawn from something Carl Barth said, which is super interesting, because so often he's seen as this kind of narrow-minded uh, yeah. theologian. Another thing you've pushed back on me for. Well, <laughs> for fair, fair. I don't yeah. know him very well. Yeah. Um, he's become so a anyway, boogeyman the, sometimes, yeah. There's some of the stuff that he can justifiably be, that, that kind of person to, to uh, be the opponent. At any rate, it's like, I say that I say, as a Christian, that's part of what it means to follow Jesus, but also... There have been times as a Christian I've felt uh, misunderstood, and I just don't want that to happen to anybody else. And here's the thing that's interesting, and I know this is it's not like a brag. I just don't know how else to say it because it's, it's the best data points I have. Students consistently tell me that my classes are just about the most open classes that they have at Chico State. And they say, basically, a lot of other professors have uh, agendas that we're always trying to find out, but we can't figure it out, you know? Right. But I think a good pluralism, this is my point, can happen if you say, here's where I am, I want to be really clear about where I am, and I want to be really clear and careful about what um, other people think, which is a, some of the motivation I have behind the conversation today and you know why this yeah. uh, started through an email. It's like, Dan, I just want to make sure this, if I'm thinking to myself of uh, sitting in my faculty department meeting uh, for comparative religion and humanities, and I said to them, oh, I've got the solution to what happens after you die. It's Christian universalism. Right. They look at me like, oh my goodness, how dare you say that, right? And huh. so that's what was the motivation for, you know, it's that clarification of how do we live in a pluralistic world and we have convictions. I think it's a really fascinating and important topic. Yeah, it's, it's exactly the kind of skill that is lacking in our uh, American public discourse today, right? Yeah, it, totally. it does the opposite of serve the profit motives of almost any media company and certainly any social media company. And so- we're left with the dregs, but can't solve that right now. So, <laughs> so let's get into this conversation. Um, one thing I like about your, you sent me the syllabus. I asked for your syllabus for this class, this death, dying in the afterlife. And the religious systems are listed basically in chronological order, which I think is cool. So we're going to, we're going to follow that order. We're going to get through as many of these as we can. Here's the table of contents. If we don't finish them all, you can look them up later on Wikipedia. Hinduism Judaism, like Hebrew Judaism before Christianity, we're going to leave Christianity out for now because we're all familiar. Ancient materialism, that is like Greek philosophers. Islam, 
modern materialism, sort of post-enlightenment, Buddhism, modern paganism, which is neo-paganism, Zen or Zen Buddhism, and Tibetan Buddhism. So that will be the order. We'll get through whatever we can. Let's start with Hinduism. So Hinduism is the oldest religious tradition in the world, right, that that we are aware of that's still going. Is that right. correct? Right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, when did, It started in what, uh, like 3000 BC, something like that? Something like that. I mean, there's these really murky beginnings to Hinduism, but let's, let's, let's go with that. We're okay. going to round off some edges, but yeah, that's, that sounds good. It's and, defensible. Uh, for, for comparison, the era of David and Solomon and Saul is probably somewhere around 12, 1300 BC, right? Right. D- David is pretty, cl- pretty sure he's around a thousand. That's always oh, a nice 1, number. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Good. So that's for comparison. So we're talking maybe a couple thousand years. The the difference between us and Christ before really most of the Old Testament is written or being circulated. And actually, certainly most of it is at least edited three to six hundred years later after that. Okay, so how does Hinduism conceive of hell slash the afterlife? This is one of the fascinating things, right? And if you were to make a basic typology of religion, which is going to, again, round off edges, but it's a really good way to start is Western religions, meaning the monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, Islam, are resurrection-based, right? And they're kind of linear. There's like a line. They go from a beginning point of the creation, and they end up in eschatology. You would say that Eastern religions are generally religions of interiority, uh, which I didn't say before. The other ones are religions of confrontation or encounter. Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism and so on tend to be religions of interiority, and they tend to be cyclical. So what we call reincarnation or the wheel of samsara or transmigration of souls is central to their understanding. And there's this uh, famous scene in the Hindu scriptures where Krishna becomes uh, part of a battle, uh, with Arjuna. And the question is, guess what, you know, how, how are we going to fight this battle? You know, what's the purpose of it? Why do we fight people? And Krishna says, well, don't worry, basically. And this is a huge paraphrase, of course. Don't worry because your soul is eternal, but your body's not. So you think we can kill people's bodies. We're not really killing them. And it's a really clear way of understanding, I think, the general way that Hinduism sees this. So we're going around, our souls are continuing to go around this cycle and hells help purify the bad karma we've had from past lives so that we come to a better new life, the next iteration of our life. So uh, hells are purgative, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're pretty bad. So they're not like purgatory where they're sort of medi They're not the medium place, right? They actually really hurt, but they serve the purpose of purification. Yes, that's right. So this is one way of putting it. I just took a couple notes here. Uh, Naraka is the equivalent of hell, right, in Hinduism. And sinners, according to the language that was used in the reading I did, are tormented after death. I'm not sure I'd use sinners. It's people who have bad karma coming in. And there's maybe a couple things I should say just to give context, because this may sound a little odd to people. Uh, The first is that, going back to Hinduism, there is actually a debate whether something called Hinduism actually exists as right. a thing. It's so, so varied and yeah. Right. Yeah. And and whether this actually came in with, you know, British colonialism, the Brits had, you know, Christianity and they needed to name what India had and huh. it was seen as Hinduism. You know, Hindu comes from India and the Indus Valley and all that. But this consensus seems to be that it's okay to to group these traditions as Hinduism, just to, but just to point that out, it's so varied. Well, and it's, it's actually, that came up even with the conversation with Andrew around pluralism was like, 
aren't there Christianities, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can find some very basic stuff that would unite all Christians. Like their thinking is based around the gospel accounts of Jesus of Nazareth or something like that. But then on literally everything else, you will find people who take every possible stance. Right. Right. And so him and Cobb were kind of saying like, let's actually just problematize these, (laughs) these big (laughs) terms. They're, they, they're not as accurate as we like to think they are. We use them as like shortcuts, mental shortcuts, but they don't mean actually a whole lot. Right. Right. And I think, you know, it's that in scholars language, that's reifying or thingifying something. And that can be problematic. It also can, can help, can make us see religions in a certain way. This is part of my sensitivity. So yeah, if you were to look at religions through scriptures, that's a very Protestant way to see a religion. Like, yeah, we'll just look at their texts. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's great as a scholar or as a teacher to do that, but it's a little bit distorting back to the, you know, the earlier, the NHL analogy I was giving. Um, The second thing about Hinduism that is a big misunderstanding, karma is not a good thing. Like karma is the wheel, which puts you on this wheel of samsara, this wheel of life and death. We love karma. You know, I have this jar that I show as a, on my PowerPoints, tipping is good karma at some coffee shop or whatever, right? My students tend to really love the idea of karma, but karma in Hinduism is greater than the gods. Karma is like this inexorable laws that exist. And so what I'm talking about bringing bad karma from our life into the next life, that's a really scary thing. When we get to Buddhism, I'm going to explain that a little bit further because of uh, what a friend of mine, how he talks about that. But what we're trying to do in the Hindu concept, and I'll use reincarnation as the name for that, you know, as we're incarnated or as we gain new bodies, whether those are human or non-human bodies, or whatever caste traditionally we've been born into, that's based on what we've accrued in terms of karma in the past life. Um, And so that's where hells come in. They are designed to understand uh, you can count up to 28 hells in Hinduism because they're trying to get rid of that bad karma. So we'll have a better birth next time. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I could probably talk to you for 10 hours about all this stuff, but we have to move swiftly to at least touch on each thing a bit. So next up would be uh, the Hebrews, ancient Judaism, basically pre-Christian Judaism. And some people talk about this. I think that people mostly don't really know the difference between they just assume that the Old Testament probably agrees with the New Testament. And so we're all in agreement. But what did Jews think about hell and the afterlife before the time of Christ or up to the time of Christ? Like everything else, I'm going to say there's some debate that could be presented. But the consensus and what I would put forward is that what's really interesting is there really wasn't much about the afterlife until the great uh, persecution after the Babylonian exile in 586 uh, BC, before the common era, before Christ. And uh, because the basic idea was God's going to bless us now, Uh, you know, in really broad strokes. So if something good happens it's going to redound to having a king and having wealth and, you know, having good things happen in this life. And the only thing that's particularly interesting, or, or so I shouldn't say interesting, it's pretty uninteresting, is this idea of Sheol or, you know, something like this shadowy existence after we die. And it's unclear what happens to people. Um, there's a fear of Sheol, you know, until at, the writings that come after this exile in 586 B.C., where there's a sense of, no, we need to have resurrection, because obviously we just got nailed by the Babylonians. There's no Messiah, meaning king. Messiah doesn't mean divine figure, really. We could talk about that. But there's no king. There's no temple. You know, there's no land. So, boy, we need some resurrection. 
And I don't mean that it's like they just come up with it, but they are forced right. to deal with this. And then when you get the Maccabean revolt and the persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes in, I think it's 165 BC, then you really see it, you know, in the books of the Maccabees. Like, okay, you're, you're this bad ruler. You think you've got us. You're killing us, but we're going to be resurrected. So at the end of the day, we're, we're going to win because our God has to be just. I mean, it's a, it's a way of solving theodicy. You know, how can God be just with all this immorality? Right. Yeah, it's clearly not guys? just now. Right. Yeah. And, and actually, that's that is the reason that I believe in an afterlife is a purely theological, philosophical argument. I believe I experience and it, I hold it fairly tenuously. But the argument goes, I experience this loving God and so do billions of other people. And this life is very clearly hard stop, not just. And so if it will ever be just there has to be something else where that gets taken care of. Right. What's interesting about the timeline there is in their scriptures before the exile, they've got 400 years of slavery in mm-hmm. Egypt. But mm-hmm. crucially, if I could psychoanalyze a little bit, none mm-hmm. of the writers of that text were themselves enslaved. And so it's not until they actually get acted unjustly upon that then they come to this understanding of justice in the next life. And interestingly, I don't know if we can draw a parallel here, but with like, for instance, the African-American church, they obviously rely so heavily on the exodus and the slavery narratives in that because it's, of course, their experience. But they can get the like when you hear a lot of black theologians talk about justice and judgment of evil, you know, they will talk about slavery and stuff like that. They're not probably not talking about the exile as much. Exile is not their experience, but they're able to combine the Jewish exile experience, which leads to these teachings with the earlier Jewish purported experience or narratives of slavery. I'm not sure exactly what to make of that, but I find right. that's an interesting little triangle. If I can make a friendly amendment, I would say they, they looked at exile as exile from Africa, right? So oh, they were right. in another yeah. country. Yeah, sure. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the amount of the Exodus narratives in black theology, black church experience. It's Exodus and down. exile. That's right. That's, yeah, that's yeah. true. I haven't read yeah. as much black theology as I should have at this point. <laughs> well, I just I, think I it is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, that's I, interesting. Yeah. Let me just, I'll just put a couple more notes in about the ancient Jewish tradition. You know, the Sheol was huge. The other thing that's so important there is the, the psychosomatic unity. So body and soul are connected. And if I'm understanding what I've heard you say around the margins, uh, that's something you really see as part of un- contemporary psychological experience, right? Yeah, no- we don't. We're not separated f- in any way from like uh, some immaterial soul or whatever. Like this is us, I think. Right? Yeah. And the, and we'll get to this later, perhaps. That you know, as uh, Judaism later took in things like Platonism and Enlightenment, right. there was a little bit more playing with that. But largely, what the Hebrew Bible tells us, the Old Testament, is we are one person. And so when we die, there's this shadowy thing that might go to Sheol, but we're not even sure there's a lot there. It's a lot more like, I think it's in the Iliad, where you have these, these people that go to the shadowy place. It's like that in Greek philosophy. So that's the first thing. And it doesn't have the Platonism, which is a key problem for Christianity, uh, which we'll probably get to later, in terms of the body-soul dualism, right? right. Yeah. And then, I mean, the other thing that's so critical uh, as you get to the point of Jesus is, a, how Jewish Jesus is. You know, I mean, he's so Jewish. In fact, and this is a whole other topic, but you look at him and the Pharisees, they agreed on almost everything. So 
that also indicates that the Sadducees, you know, did not believe in resurrection because they only read the first part, the Torah, the first part of the Hebrew Bible. You know, it's concentric right. circles in the yeah, canon. Yeah, so they're, of, they're not doing any of the post-exile stuff, really. They are, no. Right. And they, they just, they believe that was the, that was their scripture. They didn't. Interesting. And the Psalms and the writings, I think Bonnie Christian worked on this too in her podcast with you, that, you know, those weren't even finalized until after maybe two or 300 A.D., so anyway, the point being, Jesus agreed with the Pharisees, and that was one part of Judaism, Was which then, after the destruction of the temple, when the Sadducees had no more temple to, you know, like be top dogs with, then Pharisaic Judaism wins after 70 AD, and so we really know Pharisaic Judaism. And that becomes the rabbinic tradition and what we kind of know of more modern Judaism, right? And that's super close yeah. to us. I mean, the only difference there yeah. is they're still waiting for the Messiah, we believe the Messiah has already come right. as Christians. Okay. Let's talk about ancient materialism, right? So I think we're talking like fourth century BC. Yeah. These Greek philosophers and stuff like that. What would tell us about that? Well, the Adamus, um, I think of Lucretius, who, you know, I'm just doubting myself on this. I think he's just, well, he's around the time of Jesus. I can't remember. It's first century uh, BC or AD, do you, if you know offhand. No, I. so uh, the timing I'm thinking of is like the pre Socratics are like 300s, 400s BC in Greece. But Lucretius was maybe later, and he's like more of a prose writer. Right. He's not a straight philosopher in the way that Zeophanes or whoever was. Right. right. Well, I mean, he follows Epicurus, right? He's Epicurean, you know, yeah. and they, they have this idea that the gods, if they existed, were not close to us. So, yes, I guess I would say that he's one of the great – he's a great writer. Apparently, if you could really read the Latin, which my Latin's not good enough to do that – the poetry is just amazing or on the nature of things yeah, on the nature of things. Yeah. But, but I think he makes the best presentation, which is basically it, it's summarized in a epitaph. I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. So it's like I put another way, and this is going to pull us into modern materialism, but I had a materialist biologist talk in conversation with a Christian biologist about God and science and stuff in another class I do. And that, that materialist biologist would say, you know, think about before you were born. What was that like? And you're like, I don't know. I wasn't born. And he's like, well, that's what it's going to be like when you die is it's just game over. See, and now here's where Lucretius is so good because he turns the tables. Of course, again, like I agree with you. Materialism goes farther back to the atomists. And I believe they're more fourth century, fifth century before Plato and Aristotle. But you have this idea that it is the religious people that are manipulating you through the afterlife and their control on the afterlife. Wow. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. that is so contemporary, isn't That's it? That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wow. And, and if we just take away that threat of, you know, a bad afterlife, then we've just diffused the bomb. Why, why do we need these religious people? That's so um, interesting. That I mean, that set the stage for basically Dawkins, Sam Harris, like the new atheist argument almost 2,000 years later it'd be worth talking about what what we think about that argument. I think it's psychologically naive as to religion and uh, all its forces, all its draw, all its whatever cohesive ability. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Would you want to say more, Dan? Maybe I could respond to what, what you're yeah, thinking. Yeah. I'm convinced at this point that religion predates language. You know, uh, Robert Bella's work before he passed a few years ago, like the evidence seems to be that we were like clicking our tongues and singing and moving in rhythm together before we had 
and I don't, I don't, I'm not saying clicking our tongues in like a Bushman pejorative sense. I just mean right. literally before our vocal cords were modern, biologically right. modern, we could still vocalize like other primates vocalize. And we could communicate in that way too. Yeah, it wasn't in, a full-blown language or whatever. But no, without – not full cognitive thoughts as sounds, not yet. We're already moving, dancing, singing in rhythm, which is basically what you see at a worship service. Like that's the outside of what's going on at worship. There's also – there's cognitive content to the words we're singing, for instance, as we all clap and sway or whatever. But like – what percentage of it is in the cognitive content and what percentage of what's going on is in the bodily swaying and singing rhythmically and unison and the collective effervescence, right? As, uh, is that Durkheim, Durkheim, Durkheim right? Yeah. Of yeah. like being together. So all that stuff predates language. So I think to say, oh, it's the threat of hell, uh, to quote one of my favorite songwriters with uh, David Bazan, with the threat of hell. Hanging over my head like a halo, I was made to believe in a couple of beautiful truths. So great, f-ing great line, uh, but not totally. I don't think fully accurate. I think it's. Um, I mean, it might have been for him. Of course, it's his own song, but that's not the thing. It's one of the things. It's it's true. There is a threat of hell, and it and especially for anxious people, it is very powerful and it is has very bad effects. And so, as someone who both strongly advocates for people being free of spiritual abuse of any kind. I also just think it's a naive argument. It's just like, it's looking at like, I don't know, 15% or mm-hmm. something of what religion does calling it the whole thing. Cause it's clearly bad. And it is clearly bad. Although we could talk about sort of the mode. It's actually not clearly bad for people who don't have anxious temperaments. I think that's, you listen probably to the hell anxiety scale. Oh, yeah. episode. actually assigned that in my class you know, on the end of the world, by the way. So, oh, awesome. Yeah. So like there's a kind of a psychic limit. And if people aren't, sort of disturbed in other ways, you know, like I am with panic disorder or whatever, well, then they'd actually probably don't even really think about hell that much. And, you know, it again, naive is the absolute best word for it. I've, one day I want Karen Armstrong to debate one of those guys and just eviscerate them, you know, with a, a proper understanding of religion. Anyway, I digress. You could respond yeah, to that. That's super interesting. I mean, I don't know that I'm going to respond directly to what you said. I don't know that I need to, right? I mean, like, sure. it can sit on its own. Uh, what I would say about the Lucretius, on the one hand, is if there is something like Justin Barrett and his people, you know, his group of cognitive science uh, yeah. religion people, um, and maybe Sarah Lane Ritchie works on this too. And I don't know that in her work, but that there's this uh, kind of sense of the divine that's natural within our cognitive structures. Yeah. Then Lucretius is going to be disappointing, right? If there's a desire to transcend, and my my colleague John Mahoney, I was telling you about the biologist he's going to disappoint people because it does seem like there is this natural religious inclination. I want to return to that actually when we get back to the contemporary world a little yeah, bit. Yeah, let's I'll, I'll make a note to return to uh, that. Cuz I think it's it's part of what I I struggle with also just to make sure I'm reading the crowd as it were. But so in that way I think he's going to going to be uh, that is Lucretius and people who are ancient materialists are going to be disappointing at some level. Let's because, talk about modern materialism then. Here, let's just tie these together while we're on it. Yeah. I mean, so I, what's, I mean, we ever started kind of doing it, but, but I, we're kind of, if we're just talking about Dawkins and Harris, then we're actually, we're, I don't want to straw man modern materialism because I think that they are some of the worst, uh, you know, dis- describers of this viewpoint and they're much, much more qualified and much more nuanced takes than theirs. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, I mean, I think, I think modern materialism and ancient materialism have a lot of similarities. I think what modern materialists will do, will say, well, 
we really understand now through neuroscience and the cognitive sciences that there is no free-floating brain. Uh, sorry, mind, excuse me. Whether that's actually a legitimate finding from neuroscience, we could really talk about that. But let's yeah. just say that's what they're asserting. And therefore, we have to, we have to realize that we may imagine these non-spatial uh, creatures like a god or gods and therefore our bodies being like them and joining these god or gods after death, after our body, I'm sorry, our, our souls doing that. But that's just a, you know, a vestige of an overactive, overdeveloped brain. I mean, evolutionarily developed in that way. But they really are pretty much the same thing. I mean, this is where you could say materialism and I'll just call it religious uh, religion as far as like trans- transcendental experience and soul and all that sort of stuff have been around for a long, long time. Uh, I mean, I bet if we could go back to those people who were pre-linguistic and we could go into their heads, this is a completely unverifiable assertion. They would be materialists they'd, probably. Yeah. yeah, they'd go, well, I'd see people die and I don't see anything happen afterward. You know what I mean? Probably um, only later with, with uh, greater cognition can we create – narratives around what might happen to the part of them that we could interact with or you know yeah like if you don't have that kind of linguistic ability or capability for abstract thought for instance which we know dogs don't have for instance so at some point we get that ability but before we have that ability i would think that the the null hypothesis to put it in you know research language all else being equal is that they didn't have a conception of the afterlife until more cognitive capacities were possible. That's one of the things that I do disagree with the modern materialists. The modern materialist cognitive science of religion people like Pascal Boyer, I think it's Paul Bloom is the other one I was listening to recently, where they assume that even religions have always had an afterlife among them and that people have always believed in an afterlife. Yeah, I think that's false. Yeah, it is false because we know that Muhammad, when he was proclaiming his revelations, was laughed at because he believed in the resurrection. It was just not part of the Arabian Peninsula at that time in their religious tradition. The other thing I was going to say about modern materialism, I mean, there's a lot to be said, but I think transhumanism, if if we're willing to put humanism or at least secular humanism together with uh, materialism, that's, I'll do that and we can parse that if you want, but humanism being let's worry just about the human being and nature and so on. Right. uh, The transhumanist experience is really a new angle on this whole thing. So, you know, Ray it, it Kurzweil, actually kind of problematizes the, the view that materialists don't believe in a transcendent afterlife of some right. kind, because right. maybe there's a cloud version of this or something. Right. Right. Exactly. You know, I mean, all the shows we have on this, uh, the black mirror and others, right. That yeah. imagine. Upload. What, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like Ray Kurzweil, you know, he literally is taking as many pills as he can, meaning like uh, supplements, like vitamins and stuff. Yeah. So he'll stay alive until there's the singularity between, um, you know, the computer and our in his brain, and he can upload himself and have immortality. So that's a fascinating materialist, humanist approach to uh, this idea of, of how to approach the afterlife. It's a, it's a very different kind of afterlife. I think another complication, too, is that there are Christian materialists, and I think I count myself as one. It's not ontological materialism such that the only thing that exists is matter, which I think I would be uncomfortable affirming even if I weren't religious, just based on the unclearness of the science. But it's that human persons are thoroughly material and that if God does something, there are two options. God does something with my material in some miraculous way when I die that extends consciousness. The other idea is that, and this is what a lot of people who have like 
really intense mystical experiences often report, quote, learning or seeing is that like we partake in consciousness as opposed to if you have a brain as it gets old enough, you know, like my son right now, he's not going to have any memories from this time. But as his brain develops, he has more and more conscious ability. Right. So you could think of it completely encased within his skull, that that's just the consciousness that he will have. And when his brain stops, when he eventually dies, he won't have any consciousness anymore. The other way you can think of it is that actually as a brain gets to a certain point, we then partake in capital C consciousness to some degree. Now, I don't know how you prove this, but this would be another model for how I could be a purely physical being. I, in, in that sense, I don't have like a separate immaterial soul. It's not like doing things. It's not an immaterial thing acting on material reality quite, although it's complicated on how you figure all this stuff out because maybe you could accuse the sort of capital C consciousness people of saying something like that. I haven't done a lot of work on this. I think Trip Fuller would be better to talk about this stuff with than me. But anyway, that sort of complicates the issue of like you can be really, really strongly affirm the physical nature of our bodies and this world. And also there are still other options that do not sort of shut the conversation down. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is where you would, I would go back to ancient Judaism, which, which they believed, you know, as far as we can tell in the, in the general sense, uh, in the consensus that there was not a separation possible between body and soul. That was a good thing. And so we needed to be resurrected body and soul. And that's another division we'd want to make that this is not the immortality of the soul that's separated from the body uh, back to, ancient Judaism and modern Judaism, but it's actually a reconstitution of body soul together. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was thinking of the physicalists like Nancy Murphy at Fuller and people who've studied with her are are very much connected to that. I I just say one more thing about the materialists. I have to admit, I feel this one. It it, it has intuitive sense to me. And probably because I grew up in a non-Christian home, you know, for the first 18 years of my life, essentially, this was which was the mode. It was like, there's nothing, there's nothing transcendent, really. It's you die and game over, you know, and there's a way that that just feels possible to me. And so I guess to that degree, I can understand the ancient and the modern materialist perspective. Feels very possible to me. <laughs> <laughs> Uncomfortably possible, I, I think I would have to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, it's basically only my conviction through faith of a good loving and powerful enough God that I affirm anything other than that. Yeah. Although I, I, I do find the sort of capital C consciousness stuff to be very interesting. So I do, I'll put a big asterisk on even my saying, I find materialism to be very compelling in that it's compelling. And maybe we'll get to this. If we come back to cognitive science of religion, it's compelling insofar as like, I'm a physical being with a physical brain. And the only things I'm really good at understanding are physical things and ideas mm-hmm. and ideas are not the same as consciousness. They are, you know, they, they have content to them. They are like math kind of. So I just maybe don't have, since I don't have access to sort of durable things like capital C consciousness, that's why I have a hard time thinking about it. And it would right. take some sort of transcendent mystical experience to get me to think about it. Not because drugs make you think weird shit, but rather because it's just on a different order of experience that f- would feel weird to me in ordinary states of waking 
consciousness or whatever. So right, right. Uh, capital it's lower, lowercase C consciousness in that sense. I mean, but at the same time, I think all this relates to this experience we have as uh, human beings. That's very natural and intuitive that we don't seem to be just our bodies, right? Like we can reflect sure, on our yeah. bodies. And I remember my, my brother, <laughs> I'm probably telling this podcast too much about my past, but my brother was a, it was a philosopher. Uh, he studied philosophy. And I remember one day he's like, Greg, I'm really bothered by this problem. How am I the same person I was five years ago yeah. as I am today and, and tomorrow and five years from now? Because unless I believe in the soul, which I don't, I don't know how I'm the same person. And not only do we have the sense that we're not just our bodies, like I'm like, like I cut my arm off or my arm gets cut off or something. Like I'm not less of a person at some really important level. Right. And this um, is why people with disabilities are not less of people or, or right, people who exactly. only, you know, whatever, like, or born without limbs, right? There's, they get the same personness. It's, it's one unit and it is indivisible. Right, exactly. And so that's, there's something about that intuition of uh, mind that makes sense. And I know the cognitive science of religion, people who are the skeptics, why we come up with that. But I think that's a whole different direction. But it's a little bit too easy for me because I think, and that's where I think, again, the the ancient and modern materialists, by their own admission, are going to have an uphill battle, right? Because they've got to come up with something that creates transcendence like religions have done, by and large. Let's talk about Islam before we take a little break. Um, You mentioned Muhammad and you you mentioned that when he got his revelation and basically started writing the Quran, he he was laughed out of the room for believing in a resurrection. So that's actually that's just a nice little context for how little we understand Mm -hmm. uh, about the forming of these religions. (laughs) But in Islam, what is their conception of hell and the afterlife? You know, in a way, if you, you can really put together uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, in, in a certain sense, really connecting them together. And there's, in a way, nothing wrong with that. Like, I mean, Muhammad believed, of course, that he was just bringing and carrying forward the revelation that had been there in Judaism and, and Christianity, right? And that he's, right. he was the seal of the prophets, right? So that, that for him means that it's got to connect with all this other stuff. There's got to be resurrection. There's got to be the one God, all that sort of thing. Right. Um, so one of the things about Islam, which is really important, is as a whole, Islam as a religion, you might say phenomenologically, historically, has not generally gone through the Enlightenment like Judaism and Christianity have in the ways that you and I, Dan, would connect with it. So uh, I got this from my friend who's an Islamic scholar, John Amajani. He said, Greg, you've got to realize Islam as a whole has not really had that Enlightenment experience. There certainly are modern Muslims. There certainly are liberal Muslims. So when you talk about Islam, it's going to sound a little bit more like pre-enlightenment and uh, Christianity. And a lot of that's geographic, right? It just was not as big in Europe in the 16th century. Right. Absolutely. So it's right. happening and, in a – it's culturally siloed off from the European enlightenment basically. Absolutely. Yeah. And I hope – I like the way you're doing that because I don't really want to make this at all a pejorative. I want to make it a descriptive statement. But it also helps us understand when we read Islamic texts uh, and the way that – Islam tends to look at the Quran and the Hadith, which are the additional sayings that are also canonical, as we would call them, that they, as Christians would call them, that those really are upheld in a very fairly straightforward way, much closer to what we would call fundamentalists. Again, there are liberalizing and modern Muslims. I'm not undermining. Oh, yeah, for sure. I have a, I just have this like suspicion that grows and grows that conservative evangelicals are just totally jealous of Muslims. (laughs) (laughs) Just like the things that they naturally want 
<laughs> are just more obvious in Islam. Like right. a literal reading of the text, a lot of top-down control of parents to children, more community adherence to, to moral guidelines, right. mo- modesty in dress. I mean, I used to mean it kind of pejoratively. I don't anymore. I think it's just like it is a conservative temperament to want things buttoned down and traditional and the same and right. to want top-down authority and to whatever. And it's just like if you're a natural conservative – and you want to be born into a society where you get to just be a natural conservative and not be given a bunch of shit for it. Do not be born in America today. Be born in Iran. You'll have a much better time on that on that score of it anyway. This is why I envy you. I can't do this as a university professor, but you can do this as a podcast. Why? You can't say stuff like that? Uh, I honestly think it would come off as uh, it wouldn't come off as academic. Let's put it that ah, way. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, trying. I think I'm only working with it. I, of course, my little right. I'm using some real research to make a sort of comical point uh, that would maybe offend people. I don't so, think it's. I mean, I, I, that's I not shouldn't be that offensive. Kind of way of um, anyway, but, I, but I think yeah. there is an intuition there. Like, let's just you know, let, let's hold down what, what is really important. What is the revelation, the final revelation of God? And Allah, by the way, just means God in Arabic. You have that amazing podcast on Islam. Yeah. But it's just really important to remember, like when an Arabic a Christian, Arab-speaking Christian calls God, God, it's Allah. So yeah, it's nothing weird. Right. Arabic Christians also call him Allah. Right, exactly. Yeah. So um, it's, you know, once you get that revelation of Allah, then you you just, you really have to obey. I mean, that's such a key part. Islam means to submit and through submission right. to find peace. So you have to submit to that. Uh, okay. So back to your question was, how do you view that? Well, have you submitted in your life to God? There will be a, uh, there's no original sin. So that's really important to understand. Oh, right? that's interesting. Okay. We have the uh, possibility of actually obeying well enough mm. so that we would receive, God would receive us into heaven. Do they believe um, that anyone has ever done that? Are there, are there sort oh, yeah. of paragons? Okay. So what are those people? I mean, it's not perfect submission, but it's okay. good enough submission. You know, it's, and it's not the pan scale of Egypt. You know, the ancient Egyptians at the pan scale. So that's kind of how I was thinking about it. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, it's sure. more like, have you submitted to Allah? And there's this interesting period between death and uh, the period of judgment called the Barzak. Uh, I'm doubting myself on that word, but where you are interrogated by the angels on, did you believe in God, the one God, did you believe in Allah as his only prophet? And based on your answers, you are resurrected to new life or you go to hell. Um, and hells are terrible. You know, there's, there's fire, there's chains, there's all kinds of terrible stuff that you don't want to have happen to you. But it's really based on your actions. You know, if I may speak a little bit flipply as Christians, we get this all, we've got a bunch of things we're working with. You know, the idea of original sin, man, that makes things so challenging for, for this. The idea of grace makes things really challenging. Um, here is just Allah just looks at your your actions and decides whether you go to heaven or hell. Um, a couple of you know interesting points on this. Of course, Muhammad is the only or the standout uh, founder of a world religion that was overtly sexual, right? So he yeah, had said, wives, one of my, right? One of my, yeah, had wives and their sexuality, and we can debate whether this is patriarchal only or not, but is a good thing. So in paradise, according to my understanding of the texts, you, know, you have this possibility of having the virgins, right? The, the women that have never known another man in heaven. Yeah. So there's I'm a pretty certain... comfortable saying that's patriarchal, but you know, <laughs> but as much respect as I have for, for Islam and 
you know, of course, for myself, especially Sufi Islam, you know, that's my, the uh, the Western approved mystical variety or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, I think I mean, I'm OK with saying just like in just like there's patriarchy in the Old Testament and New Testament, but especially strong in the Old Testament. And it reads to me like that. And I'm OK. Of course, I'm not a Muslim, but I can call it that. Fair enough. I think I mean I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. So you got you got sexuality. You could put patriarchy in there, um, and then it's of course typologized within the, the Middle East. Even though Islam is today geographically incredibly expansive, it's not even primarily in the Middle East, but it was started yeah. there. And so the word paradise really means enclosed garden. You know that's and we pick that up not from Islam, but uh, Christians pick it up from, from Persian. And it, you know, it's like, you're in the King's garden, you're hanging out. That's your, that's your, your paradise. So all that's really straightforward. You know, there's, you know, there's some what is, weird. What is hell like in Islam? Is it, I mean, it's not Dante. So we, we mostly think of Dante's Inferno in Western Christianity after the middle ages, right? Cause mm-hmm. that's just taken on, even though, even if we know that's not really it, that's kind of how we think of it. So how do Muslims actually picture hell? Well, I mean, I think there's actually, it's actually pretty close to Dante's Inferno. Um, I mean, I wouldn't go through all the, the levels of hell. And of course, this is often what I say in my classes. This is 1.8 billion people, you know, so it's right. like to try to summarize it. But you sure. know, it's a lot like Dante. I mean, there's, there's definitely tortures. There is endless retributive punishment, right? And, and actually, this is a really fascinating question. Did Islam... And Zoroastrianism before that was that what affected the understanding of hell that we take to, in Christianity? Oh, right, because we there's this big gap where basically we go into the Dark Ages, mm-hmm. and Muslim philosophers and theologians are like copying Aristotle, interpreting Aristotle and the other Greeks, and basically we we only get the Greeks brought back to the West through the writings of these Arabic thinkers. And so do they have, I mean, naturally have some say in kind of how, I mean, some of it's obviously just translated straight up, but in terms of the way that we, you know, European Christians, as we're coming into the scholastic age, thinking about that stuff, right? Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, you go back to the, the people who want to look to origin for universal salvation. And one of the questions is, so origins around 200, right? AD. And after that, you know, Islam's Muhammad's five, 70 to 632 AD. So did Islam and its influence in the Middle East uh, influence Christianity's understanding of hell? Um, so as you developed hell, did, did the Islamic understanding actually affect the Christian understanding is, is a question that scholars are really fascinated by. That would um, be the, <laughs> the most creative way to be Islamophobic in the world would be <laughs> to be a progressive Christian who is Islamophobic because they taught – your Christian forebears to be worse thinking about hell. <laughs> like they're the, like it's Muhammad's fault that you got John Calvin. Right. It's exactly. the funniest yeah. way to be an Islamophobe <laughs> that I could ever imagine. Yeah, it is really funny, but it is. It, yeah. So I could leave it there, but I mean, I yeah. think that you, you see this interaction of uh, ideas and certainly the development of hell and Christianity. It's really complicated. And it isn't a straightforward thing. You don't just read the text yeah. in the New Testament and get to the baptistry in front of the Florence church, right. which is probably what influenced Dante, you know, with the, all the people twisting or uh, right. the last judgment in the Sistine chapel. There's not a direct line there. So in between like 1520 or something and 
I don't know, 33 AD when Jesus died. There's a lot of history in there, and there's a lot yeah. of things that were added with hell. But but just back to summarize with Islam, it's a very clear place that we all get to. We're based, we're judged on our actions and whether you are a good Muslim or not. And I should probably put in there that in Islamic theology, all of us were born Muslim. So to confess another religion is to actually apostatize. You're actually denying Islam because you're born as a Muslim. Um, so that's why if in Saudi Arabia, if you become a Christian, you're not just converting, you're apostatizing. You're, you're denying and going against what you've been born into. Um, and why, why it's, I think at least in the past, I don't know the current laws, but it was punishable by death. So, mm. so anyway, if you're a good Muslim, means everybody is judged in, in Islam by whether they were a good Muslim or not. So interesting, man. It's it's one of the more interesting, to use Jonathan Haidt's language, like a moral dumbfounding experience to be a progressive, modern person, contemporary person, and to both really want to and to try to and to actually value the experience of other faiths and actually to be fascinated by them. And you know, like my favorite show right now is called Rami, and it's about a... New Jersey Muslim guy, you know, dealing with trying to rethink his faith, but also being kind of a secular, uh, you know, 20 something. And I love it. But also like just hearing you talk about the reasoning, I'm just like, yeah, and I'm not conservative anymore. Like, and I just, I would want Muslim theologians to take more sociology courses and recognize that people don't choose the religion that they're brought into. And that that's kind of an untenable view uh, that I've had to get rid of that I once held as a Christian that like, yeah, they're heathens. They're born in the wrong place. And like, if they don't do something, they're screwed. If we don't reach them, they're screwed. I, I think is a naive view. I can't help but apply it there, but I'm also, I'm torn. I'm pulled in both directions. It's clarifying insofar as it helps me think about how confident am I in some of these more recent, more progressive leanings and beliefs that I have because it's coming up against my, uh, my desire for tolerance and inclusion, right? right. It's, right. I think it's right. so fascinating and, and yeah, just clarifying. I mean, this is going to come in as we come to the end for the last part of the talk, our conversation, but this I think is why people are going back to origin who like Brad Jerzak and, I don't think David Bentley Hart cares what other people think. So I don't think it's Hart's motivation. Oh, no, he he likes origin and has argued, at least in blog posts, that he was only considered anathema and like whatever, like on some other issue after the fact. He, he's defended origin. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I know Hart yeah. defends origin. No, I'm okay. just saying I don't think Hart cares what he we think. Care. Yes. No, yeah. he doesn't give a yeah. shit. Right, that right. was what I was good, yeah, getting yes, at. But the yeah. point I was going to my, – my conclusion was I think a lot of people – want to not just be contemporary liberals in being universalist. And that's right. why they look to origin. That's my point. It's like, yes, they're saying, well, gosh, this is so old. I'm not just being this, you know, 21st century liberal, but I got, I just go back to that initial point about Islam. Again, in the main Islam has not gone through the enlightenment like Christians and Jews have. Of course, American Muslims are more likely to be modernized and more likely to be, you know, in this world that we live in, in the United States. But I'll just tell you one little story where this really came clear. Um, this friend of mine, John Amarjani, I was telling you about, he's an Islamic scholar. And I'm like, John, I'm teaching Islam. This is several years back. And I'm like, John, do, is there like a, a search for the historical Muhammad? Like there's a search for the historical right. Jesus. And, and John is really funny. He talks really slowly. He goes, Greg, I just got to let you know that Islam 
sees the search for the historical Jesus as enlightenment. And that's what undid Christianity. So Greg, they don't like in general, this kind of enlightenment thinking, you know, like John, you're so right. I mean, they see it as what's destroyed our faith. Again, I don't want to just talk about they, the Muslims out there, but as a whole, especially Middle Eastern Muslims say, that's what's destroying Christianity. That's why you have the religious nuns. Again, conservative evangelicals have found their people. If only they would let them into the country. Right. They would find all this agreement. Um, Okay. We're going to take a break and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about Buddhism and then we might have to skip uh, modern paganism for time. And then we're going to get to this uh, other conversation about putting our, our conversation about universalism in the context of this more global pluralistic world. Sounds great. All right, Greg, let's get back into this and talk about Buddhism. We've got general Buddhism, like traditional Buddhism. We've got Tibetan Buddhism, and then we've got Zen, sometimes called Zen Buddhism. So let's start with traditional Buddhism. What's going on with hell and the afterlife there? Right, and there's those two big divisions within general Buddhism, Theravada and Mahayana. So I'm going to put those all together just for simplicity's sake. I agree with you. Like Tibetan and Zen have their own interesting components that are unique, but general Buddhism, I think, has some very common threads. So if I can just introduce it through my colleague, Jason Clower, I had him come to my class and Death, Die in the Afterlife and talk about Buddhism. And he's, he's a great speaker, used to be a CNN reporter in China. And like, he knows how to talk and how to modulate his voice and how to give a good story. And he said, you know, the reason I became a Buddhist, I didn't want to die anymore. And he said, you know, the whole thing about Hinduism was the cycle of samsara. And I didn't say that, I, I, I mentioned earlier that kar- uh, karma is a, a tough thing for Buddhists, but so is the wheel of samsara. I mean, that's not any better. For Hindus, you mean, yeah. I said, sorry, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, so Buddhists pick that up, right? They're, Buddhists yeah, pick up right. this, Both this things, idea. right? Yeah. yeah. So Jason said, you know, I didn't want to die anymore like you do in Hinduism. I wanted to have the flame go out, as we talk about in, with Nirvana, and so that I would stop dying. And he gave this really interesting paraphrase from a, a Buddhist scripture. Uh, he said, you imagine a big mountain, and like every something like every 10 years, a bird comes by and drops a seed. And when that mountain gets down to the flatland, then you have another life. So the horror of the wheel of samsara this reincarnation is you just keep getting reborn. It's not like, Oh, I remember my last life. I was out on the, the pyramids of Egypt on the Nile river. It's like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to be born and reborn and reborn. And Jason said, what's great about Buddhism is you find a way to stop being reborn and you find a way to get to Nirvana. So very slowly though. Yeah. Extremely slowly. And, and one of the things he pointed out, not being a Buddhist, this is, was not intuitive to me is, that's why it's so important to make your decision. This would be a good evangelical way to put it, to make your decision today for Buddhism, because today you are incarnated in a human being, but you may be incarnated in all kinds of other stuff later, and it's going to take you a while to get back to being a human based on your karma. So you know, Jason Clower is a pure land Buddhist. It's a Chinese form of Buddhism. I'm not saying that represents everybody, but I think he got at something there is 
how do we get out of this wheel? And if you have that wheel, that's where uh, the hells fit in. This is new to me, to be honest. I, maybe this is too self-disclosive, but there are like theme parks in Buddhist countries of the hells. You know, the hells for, this is more like Dante, like the hells for the, Whoa. you know, like for the lustful, the hells for the avarice, dick, or whatever that adjective is the hells yeah. for the you know the proud and you go through those again to very much like what i was saying with hinduism if buddhism does have hells or emphasizes them uh if a form of buddhism emphasizes them it's going to be in order to you know it's part of your karmic process and they're pretty bad i mean earlier i was saying that you know conservative evangelicals should befriend more muslims but the ones who put on the Halloween or whatever, the scared straight, you know, right. things, they should go to, to check out the Buddhist hell amusement parks. Right, They've exactly. got uh, some, you know, that's the thing. Anytime you learn, like we're all humans. So they are going to be like similar manifestations based on human individual and group psychology in various religious traditions. In both those traditions, someone started to get the idea of like, we should enact this for people to scare them straight so that they won't go to hell. Right. Same thought, just right. different religious traditions. Right, right. I mean, and, and of course, the Buddha, you know, Siddhartha Gautama, he wanted to undo a lot of Hinduism. So I don't want to make it sound like it's just Hinduism. Yeah. But, so but yeah, I think it's yeah. – and A, who knows what the relationship is between the text we have on Siddhartha, the Buddha, yeah. and what he actually did. Uh, most people think he was an actual person, but if you've ever done the history of Jesus studies, man, the history of the Buddha studies are even more complicated. But at any rate, with my point being, it's okay to take those and develop them in Buddhism. And certainly Mahayana did that as a later effect of trying to apply the Buddhist teachings. And let me just be clear with my language. So the one guy, Siddhartha Gautama, he was the Buddha. So he's right. the enlightened one. But yeah. Uh, in Buddhist teaching, we can all become Buddhas. Right. Um, so that, that's then, why he's the Buddha. And the people right below Buddhas are, uh, what's the word for Bodhisattvas? It? Bodhisattvas. So they yeah. are like, basically, it's it's kind of like the verse that Christ did not consider oneness with God, something to be whatever. I'm I'm butchering it. But like they yeah. get to where they could right. be, go to Nirvana, and they're like, I'm going to stick around and help people for a while. Right. Totally. Which right. is pretty which cool. Is a, and, it, and has a lot of resonance with really the incarnation, frankly, and other, I don't know, other Christian virtues. I always found that it's to be... It's a good be, reason that Steely Dan wrote a song about Bodhisattva. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm not a Steely Dan guy, so I don't... Ah, uh, well, the, sure. I would recommend it. It's an amazing uh, blues jam song, but we, we'll move yeah, on, I suppose. Moving then. on, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I mean, so Buddhism, I'm going to go through Jason in, in the main, and then we'll get to Zen. But are those hells everlasting, or like no. in Hinduism, they're not? No, but there's so that's the the eternal part of consciousness in ECT, which is what we're calling hell, right? For the purpose of this in, in Christianity, yeah, it's the eternal part that makes it so morally insane. Yes, yeah, I think that's that's the offensive part, right? Temporal um, conscious torment until you are fit to be in God's presence. I don't have a problem with that. I right. mean, I could imagine better ways to do it. I think, but I'm not God, so right. as long as you know, sure, right. sure, maybe. Right. You know? Yeah. So that, no, it's not eternal. And that would be a big difference, but they do have hells, which is really interesting. And they yeah. very much will use that language in terms of describing what these are. They're yeah. not purgatories or something. So let's so, talk about Zen because Zen, when people describe Zen, they usually describe it as like the only non-religious religion or like, you know, it's not a religion. Basically 
uh, my understanding of like the fundamental claims of Zen are like non statements. They're like exclusively statements about what something is not. And right. so you're you're yeah. just trying to like you're basically trying to get in and hijack this natural dualism, which is another way of saying that things are separate from each other. And you're just trying to like hammer away at that to free yourself of that illusion. But there's no God really, or that that's my very layman's understanding. How, how accurate is that? Well, and there's, yeah, I mean, uh, most people I talk to today don't even think the Buddha thought there was a God. So this is a really interesting point. Again, right. well, let's leave it there that it is a non-theistic religion. Yes. Generally speaking, whereas um, Hinduism has all kinds of deities and bigger ones and smaller ones and all that stuff. You don't have that in Buddhism. No, well, you don't. And although we're going to get to Tibetan Buddhism where you kind of do. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's all that all this weirdness. But I, I would say, you know, with Zen, I think what's so interesting is you have that sense of this shunyata, which is emptiness, you know, which both is a a figure that surrounds emptiness. And uh, so it's related etymologically to the word zero. So they have the sense that at the heart of existence is death and emptiness. It's But emptiness is good in Zen. Absolutely. And, Whereas and, when I think about if the heart of it is emptiness, I'm freaked out. I don't want to be nothing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to stop existing. I am thoroughly Christian in that sense, you know, to the point where it's maybe my greatest fear is non-existence. I am I'm getting a little better. I'm getting a little more comfortable with it over time. Uh, my own kind of uh, ad hoc exposure therapy, but you know, emptiness is good in this, in this worldview. Right. Exactly. I mean, there's a, the way that to achieve Nirvana means that you have already died before you die. Right. So you don't die again in a certain sense. And that's, I mean, Zen is, as, as you know, I think you've mentioned it before in your podcast, it's, you know, the koan, the, uh, these riddles that don't have a solution like what's the sound of one hand clapping is that really famous one so you find yourself beyond dualities but beyond you know basis of of western thought and logic is a is not a right so it can't be a is not not a so it can't be raining and not raining at the same time and that's exactly where buddhism goes and says no that's that's the unenlightened mind it's when you go beyond dualities and and the biggest duality being death we live with a consciousness of death if you've developed yourself in Zen to the point where you don't really die in that sense because you've already died. Um, and it, if that sounds really weird, it's supposed to sound weird. You know what I mean? It's yeah, not supposed it is, to sound right. like to us. And I think even to people who learn Zen, it's really complicated. I just thought it might be interesting to note for people, you know, when Zen occurred, it was around, it was in China, people think around the 7th to the 10th century AD. So it's a relatively recent religion, whereas the Buddha was probably alive, let's just say really broadly around 500 BC. So it's a long development after uh, the Buddha's teaching, and it's very comfortable moving away from like some kind of orthodox Buddhism, whatever that would mean in Buddhism. Right. right. Yeah. uh, By the way, if people are into Richard Rohr, this is the foundation of his whole non-dualistic thinking catchphrase which I don't like calling it that, but I I feel like oftentimes he doesn't define his terms enough. And so that's why I'm kind of semi-jokingly referring to it as a catchphrase. I recognize it. I can have this conversation with you and go, yeah, that's non-dual thinking. But I have never once glimpsed this kind of thing for myself. (laughs) I can sort of get it. I sometimes hear people throw around, ah, well, that's just dualistic thinking or whatever. And I'm like, I don't know. 
I don't think it's so easy to just start using these phrases in your normal life. Like mm-hmm. people who practice Zen do this for years. Like it's right. not like a there's not a version of the four spiritual laws tract that like anybody can just kind of get it. Oh, I accept the teachings of Zen Buddhism or whatever. It's right. like no, 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 no. It is like Roar has done the work. He has been a contemplative for decades. I don't have access to his personal experience. I haven't done that work. I'm not where he's at in regards to that stuff. And uh, sometimes I think we can read a book by him or a few blog posts or listen to him talk and consider ourselves these enlightened progressive Christians because we can talk about non-dual thinking. Most of us have no idea what the hell we're talking about, and we have not done the work to use that language. I just, for some reason, felt like soapboxing about that for a minute. I think it's important, and it goes back to this basic division between East and West. So in the West, there's a God out there. The God is transcendent and encounters us and, and speaks to us. In the East, the divine is within. So that's why it's in religions, there's a religion of interiority. And Hinduism has the same thing. It's when, you know, Atman, your own soul, as it were, is, you see it the same as Brahman, which is the universal soul or even God. When those are the same, when you see your own divinity, that's, you know, release from the cycle of samsara. I mean, so it's not an easy thing. It's not just saying it somehow, but I think it's baked into Western thinking that, we have this dualistic approach partly because of the way we understand the divine. And now I'm, now I'm am riffing too. It's like, but that's what makes Sufism so interesting. That's what makes the mystical tradition so interesting because all of a sudden you've got these Western people that are talking like they're Eastern people, right? I am God. uh, I am divine. I'm one with God, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And that's where I get really pumped. And like the, the monks that I have spent a little bit of time with in big Sur. That's the kind of stuff they're into. So you, you get a, you get this a lot. Contemplative traditions in all of the world religions in the last 150 years, basically, as they were able to sort of like oh, maybe 100 years get to each other, you know, especially once air travel started, like really, really interesting sort of interreligious dialogue that happens among contemplatives in each of these traditions. And I am pretty convinced that. Whatever form of Christianity I'm supposed to follow is going to be the one informed by contemplative Christians, especially the ones in dialogue around the world. But that's not to say that I am anywhere near it personally. That's just what I'm aiming toward. And I I have very little faith that I'll get all that far. Uh, but to the extent that I can, that's that's kind of where I'm headed is yeah. this sort of ecumenically minded, interfaith minded, contemplative monks basically and other christians and people of other faiths so in a way you're moving beyond the the dualistic thinking i mean that's a that's Uh, an interesting intuition yeah yeah dan should i go ahead and do tibetan buddhism i have a little anxiety because i don't make sure we have time for the reconstruction part yeah let's um let's just do like two minutes on it uh tibetan buddhism is complicated it's the dalai lama it is like a lot of the really beautiful aesthetic stuff about buddhism that makes it to the states like prayer flags and prayer wheels and these like vistas in the Himalayas, you know, with the flags. And it's so beautiful. It's also like the least palatable version of Buddhism to Westerners because there's like the reincarnation stuff is so weird of these llamas. You know, you got like nine-year-old kids that a kid's been told he's the reincarnation of some other llama before him. And like, that's so weird and complicated. I mean, I'm just being very non-academic here. Right. Uh, it's, but, but it's like the weirdest kind of Buddhism. But it's also it also pierces our consciousness in some ways because 
the Dalai Lamas have been such clear communicators. Right. And they, they're just very good, like, speakers. And right. They've got like a better PR department than Zen or whatever. I don't know how you want to say it. Well, I, I mean, I agree with you. And it's like, I bet you if I asked people to name a Buddhist, they would name the Dalai Lama, right? I yeah. mean, it's the smallest. If, if you have three branches of Buddhism, or maybe four with Zen, it's the smallest of the other, in line of the other two that I mentioned, Mahayana and Theravada. And, and yet we know the most about it. I just say two things about it. The famous Book of the Dead is the journey through the six realms after death. Right. Which it's very specific and that can be found on the internet really easily. So that's that's fascinating as part of our cleansing, you might say, in more Western terms after we die. And then uh, there's this kind of meditation, I believe it's pronounced FOA meditation, that may be mispronounced, but that you go through in life, which is a little bit like I was saying with Zen, that prepares you for death so that you are getting ready to meet the moment of death. It's kind of in some ways like the most folky religion of Buddhism yes. in the main. I'm not saying that folk there aren't religion folk. is good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And they yeah. and they've actually incorporated folk religion. That's that's actually intentional or whatever or allowed. Yes. Oh, that's its own very interesting thing. <laughs> Let's leave it to the side for now. Let's turn now toward our we're going to kind of use this massive amount of context that we've gotten, you know, 80 some minutes of context. Before we totally do that, I have one last question, which is just is there any universalism anywhere except in Christianity, in global religious context? People usually look to Hinduism as being one of the most universal religions, okay. uh, but we would be fit into their system, you know, largely speaking. But um, even would say it's more relativistic universalism. So by relativistic, I mean that the truth that you have is related to the truth you've been taught. Um, so okay. I believe it was Gandhi who said, you know, all religions are true. That's not a and particularly... Uh, novel statement, but that that's very Hindu. Um, okay. Ramakrishna, I believe, said the same thing at the end of the 19th century. So basically, we are all, this is really more, we're all on the paths to get to some enlightenment. But they're looking for enlightenment and salvation from, or, I'm sorry, release from the wheel of cycle of death and life. And right. we're looking for uh, salvation. Yeah, resurrection and salvation, right? Like yeah. another, yeah. It's so interesting. Oh, I love this stuff. So where do you want to start as we sort of turn our sights? Because you initiated this conversation, and I'm very excited to have it, on let not being jackasses, basically, <laughs> uh, and, and reading the room as we think about this stuff, especially if we're being more outward facing and not just having an internal dialogue, which, of course, is always fine to have an internal one for the people who need it, right? But if we're looking more outward and we're trying to to really be in this wider world. Where do you want to start? I have to say, I think it's, it's complicated. It's something I've thought about for a long time. And essentially the question is, how do you have convictions in a pluralistic world? And by pluralistic, I just mean that there's a, a number of different perspectives. Yeah, empirically right? pluralistic, just on the ground, right? There just right, exactly. are differences. Yes. So yeah, again, we, we first met at the American Academy of Religion last November in San Diego. And it's 10,000 scholars of every religious tradition, not necessarily practitioners, but scholars, some practitioners. And so imagine you and I having a conversation in front of them, right? Oh, and interesting. Yeah. That's my third group. So there was the first group was the group of the death, dying, and afterlife students. There was the second group was my faculty meeting. And my third group was of the comparative religion department. And my yeah. third group is AAR, American Academy of Religion. Keynote panel discussion. Yeah. yeah for or, everybody's or, or Dan and Greg get to pontificate could be it. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how would you have that conversation and have the convictions 
that we have and do it in a really useful way. And maybe I have a couple procedural things and they're not procedural. I don't think in a technical way, but they're ethically procedural. Like the first thing I take in from the incarnation and from Paul's words in Philippians, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others is like, how do we, how do we empathically enter into the people that are going to listen to this? I learned this also through Whitehead's philosophy where he was really, there was no central place. It's, a call, it's what my uh, mentor, Michael Velker, calls a multi-perspectival, polycontextual philosophy. So, like, there's no center. There's no Archimedean point in Whitehead's philosophy. It's an attempt to see things from all the perspectives at once, um, which is incredibly difficult. But how would we be in a, at least sensitive to all these perspectives, to the person who says, I die, game over. I am waiting for reincarnation and uh, I, my karma is going to follow me, and that's what's going to determine my next life. I'm an open-minded student of religion. I don't know which one's true. I'm a Christian who's been hurt by ECT yeah. and so on. Like, how right. would we think of those people? And I think the first thing is to try to enter into their perspective. I think the second thing that I, I would say is, you know, I, I think not too easily thinking we're solving their problems because they not, may not be the problems they have. Well, so that's where I find already just focusing on eternal conscious torment is helpful because if there is not eternal conscious torment anywhere else except maybe Islam, yeah, um, yeah. we're just we're actually not even dealing with their hell. We're, right, we're not. Right. We're not even like if that's the main problem and I see it. Now, interestingly in the conversation with Brad Jursak about annihilationism as sort of the middle position, right? That well maybe those who aren't saved are simply annihilated it avoids the big moral problem of eternal torment and right. sort of the unjust, you know, whatever, but it doesn't robustly affirm God's ability to sort of make things right on some views because, you know, how much do people really choose what they choose? We're so, we are so blown about by the wind. We're so contextual. We are so significantly at least pre-wired by our brain wiring and stuff. And we have certain limits beyond which we don't seem to be able to to pass. And so do we really want a God that sort of can't work with that? Interestingly, these more Eastern models have a, a pretty good model for something like that, right? Right, you, right. You work on it with another brain. I mean, you don't just have the one brain. But <laughs> right. of course, if you are a physicalist about the human person, then that you're going to have a problem. How do right. you get to another brain? Although I guess it's the same problem. As a, a Christian physicalist, how do you get to the new heavens and new earth if if this body dies? And, you know, so right. there, you, you have to end up coming in with some sort of weird account of that, I guess. Now I'm, I feel like I went in circles. Yeah, I think, I think those are all really important questions. I mean, part of this is based on, well, I think we said right right away is like, how many people really have the problem with the ECT hell? And, well, in uh, American Protestantism, a lot, but that's absolutely. also a niche, right? Globally. Yeah, I think a lot of people really do have that concept. You go to the cathedrals in Europe, which is largely a post-Christian region, and you still see Christianity as you get saved from hell or you have the beatific vision in the Catholic Church, Catholic Church Church's mode. And, you know, my students... I don't want to say they're not interested in that. They definitely are interested in that. And they definitely, many of them have either heard that or had that taught to them. For what it's worth, I give them Bell's book, Love Wins, just because yeah. it's a really, I think, approachable way to understand that. And that's really Super. helpful for them. You know, like yeah. uh, they, they, okay, oh, wow, Christianity is really not as bad as I thought. This is not a great sample size because I'm not going to say this is some 
you know, big deal. But I will say the people who are Christians who or brought up Christian, that's a helpful thing for them because Bell does do a little work with the ancients. Um, yeah. does work with the scriptural texts. Yeah. He, he points out that the Bible gives five or six different accounts of how people are saved. That alone yeah. was worth the price of admission for me to go. Right. Oh, and then that led me to Schleiermacher and his saying like, how are these people saved before Christ dies? Right. That's right. interesting. We got to, it's bigger than we thought is one way of uh, it's wider. Like God is wider and bigger and God's ways are wider and bigger. And that's like tremendously freeing especially the the more narrow of a vision you've been given, right? Yeah, and I think maybe, Dan, that we're, we're backing into something or whatever that might be a way to put this is we're saying as a Christian to to make a presentation of what future life is about. It's not like we're necessarily trying to convince people of what they should believe, but we're at least saying we want to present a Christianity that is believable. You know what I'm saying? So like, um, okay, so maybe, you know, I'm talking to my materialist friend, and he's saying, okay, you know, or young or students, there's certainly materialist students like, oh, you die, you're dead. I mean, that's the, there's nothing beyond the brain function. Your brain function stops, you die. You don't have any ongoing existence. Maybe what we're doing is saying, well, we are going to present a Christianity that's not so terrible. And if you wanted to believe in Christianity and the gospel, it's, it makes more sense that way. That might be a way to put it. I mean, the people that I also see get turned off are the people who've had the really hard edged held fire and damnation sermons. And like, you've got to come to, you know, to Jesus or you're going to hell. And I just don't see a lot of traction with that in my California experience or in the reading that I do or in the podcasting. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I don't think that's the future of the church. I think it's going to be a decreasing element. Yeah, for sure. But if you grew up in Kentucky, for instance, you probably still grew up with that. Right. Even if you're 40 or, you know, even if you're 20. You probably right. still grew up with that if you grew up in Kentucky. Some of that, right. a lot of that's geographic. Right. Um, and yeah, you and I are on the West Coast, and so we see less of it. Although Seattle is the kind of city that people who grew up with that move to when they want to get away from it, which is right. interesting. <laughs> right, right. So I mean, I think that's maybe one thing we're saying. I, I guess another part of this that I'm teasing out is a lot of people have um, difficulties with persuasion and thus apologetics. But I, I don't know. Everybody I talk to who has convictions wants to persuade you that what they're thinking is a good thing. And I have no problem with persuasion. Like, I think persuasion is human. Like, if I really believe in something, I want to persuade you. And I guess I would challenge my universalist friends to say, don't tell me you're just telling me descriptively. I think you're actually convinced this is the best way to see it, and you want to convince me that. And that's fine. That doesn't bother me. But just get your cards on the table. Make make the arguments, basically. Let's talk about Brad Jersak. So I love him, loved interviewing him. Compared to him, I have, like, 10% 10% as much confidence about my views on this stuff. Like he really, I would say, I, I don't think I'm strawmanning him. He would say that he has a lot of confidence in scripture and the patristic tradition interpreting scripture that they are describing the state, the real state of affairs in the afterlife, metaphysics, whatever. Right. I would say, oh, I have way less confidence than that. As a Christian, this is what makes sense to me. But I would say patristics probably they have a three-tiered cosmology and they have no idea what the hell's going on in the universe. And so I'm way less, you know, whatever. And of course I probably have a lower view of scripture than him. But so what would you like? I think he is convinced in making the arguments. And then sometimes I think, Oh, he's just like a really good version of the Muslim clerics arguing over the Islamic rules around meat production or something. Right. I right. don't know where to put Brad. I, I can tell that we're different and we, 
connect enough that it's great talking with him and I appreciate his mind. You know? Yeah. 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 I mean, I think I, I don't know his work that well, uh, just to be honest, I'm kind of like where you were in the interview. It's like, I still need to read his book, but yeah, I feel right, like I got right. a lot, I got a lot from the interview and I, I really yeah. liked his approach a lot. And I think it was compelling because he was pretty clear about his conclusions, but I think he was, here's what I appreciated. And this is what I was talking about earlier. He could tell you why other people have their views, right? And he said, yes. okay, Dan, I want to give you what their response is and then why I think it's not a good response. And yes. generally the, he was pretty accurate. So yeah, I think he's really important. I mean, I don't think I mentioned this in the last podcast, but I've certainly put it in other places. I'm, I'm kind of half evangelical and half mainline. So I, mean, I grew up as a nun, as a not religiously affiliating secular world, became a Christian, got involved in an evangelically oriented PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA church. So there's a little bit of both of those flowing in me. And I don't have the anger that I feel from my friends who grew up in a hard-edged evangelical church. And I, th- that part, I just, I, don't, I lack that. And my point here is I find myself wanting more leaning on somebody like a Carl Barth than on origin. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read a lot of, uh, this is not some test, but if you've read a lot of origin or if your listeners have. Of course I is, haven't. No, it's so weird. I mean, the stuff is really weird. I just wish the people who thought they were doing something with patristics actually read those old guy, those older authors. Cause they're like, hmm. they're just freaking out of this world. You know what I mean? I'm not saying it's bad. Give I'm me just an saying example. No, give us an example. Well, I mean, the stuff that um, Jerzak was talking about with the age of ages and then the final age, you know, they've got this whole metaphysics they're putting into the scriptural interpretation about, yeah. well, there's the judgment here, but that's yes. not the final judgment. because that's, like, okay, ju- that's a perfect example. That's what I was trying to remember about my talk with Brad. So his way of working with the text is he says, look, if you put it in this timeline, you can keep all the verses, right? right? right. Something like that. And right. I'm just like, if I know, man, like <laughs> three, mo- three discrete moments after, I mean, like, I just don't have nearly the confidence in mm. the text itself, probably. And then certainly like some particular ordering of it. I don't right. believe the Bible's an error. And I don't believe that there was ever a moment or like a, a layer where God ensured that it was accurate. So therefore, I have to believe it's more organic. The Bible organically results in the people of God, which, by the way, probably everybody's people of God, but this particular religious tradition who are genuinely interacting with God organically produced this Bible. That is, you know, I'm going to it's here. A peer reviewed study might be about the same level of confidence, you know, a hundred peer reviewed studied more confidence. You know, I don't mean if it's addressing something that the Bible addresses, of course, the Bible addresses plenty of things you can't address with peer reviewed studies, of course. And it gives us language for our ecstatic transcendent experiences with God. And that is invaluable. Yada, yada, yada. You know what I'm saying? Right. But that was the time where I was like, well, this works. I don't need something like this. I I am not convinced enough of the authority of reading this this way or interpreting this this way through this tradition of patristics, whatever. You know, he's uh, Greek Orthodox, so that's a much bigger thing for them. You know, they've everything. It's the councils up until the schism. That's the only authoritative stuff. I get it, but I'm not there. And so that was an interesting departure for me, not disagreeing with his conclusions because we agree, but actually having a very different kind of approach or arguments. But I also loved, like you're saying, how clear he was about those arguments. And then I could say, ah, okay, what do I do with that? 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I have a, to what you're saying, I have a, a solution and a problem. Should I begin with the problem or the solution? A problem. Yeah. So, I mean, the problem I have with Jerzak and uh, Ilari Romelli um, and to what I've read from Hart is when they look at origin, there's this thing about, well, everything was okay until Augustine. And then Augustine created hell, right? And I just think it's so simplistic because if you look at the martyrdom of Polycarp in 155, approximately, let's say 150 AD, he is very clearly talking about a hell. The hell is for the punishment of the people that are martyring him. I mean, let alone the, the New Testament texts, whatever they say. So I just, I cannot say that it was just this universalism until Augustine or something, or that that was the main reading. And for goodness sake, Origins way down in Alexandria, Virginia, 200 years after, essentially after Jesus is doing his teaching, is the English I use the same English as Jane Austen? You know, by no means, right? Mm, yeah. um, sense and sensibility, those words don't mean the same thing in English that they did 200 years ago. So my point being, I don't think it's extremely careful reasoning that you just go back to origin somehow and it yeah. solves everything. I'm not well, saying he's not important, but I just yeah. think... It's not to me enough to solve the problem. So before you give your solution, I just I happen to still have John Hott's book, The New Cosmic Story, sitting mm-hmm. right here. And that makes me think of his what is that? The episode's called To Look for God in the Future, not the Past. Right. And he talks about, you know, there's like the past orientation, the sort of pre- eternal present orientation and the future orientation. And I would say that this type of argument is a past orientation. It's like, mm-hmm. look. We're saying we have this text that's authoritative, and there is some amount of time after which the early thinkers, they were closer to it, they understood it better, so they're more authoritative as interpreters of it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm kind of into Hot's view, which is like, uh, you know, Chardin and others, like, whatever is true, it's probably to come. And like, Jesus is a signpost in time that shows me as someone in the Christian tradition gives me an interpretive lens for dealing with whatever is coming in the future, coming at me now came at me last week, whatever, but like whatever the ultimate answer is, it is not going to be what anybody or group of people in 450 thought like that's not right. where it's going to be. Right, uh, right. As time goes on, we will get better and better language. Yes, we will lose some things. We will not have access to certain ways, we're never going to get it exactly, but like greater clarity is later on, not mm-hmm. further back. Right. Um, well, and and so I, that's one way of thinking about it. Absolutely. And I'm, I, I was listening to the, your interview with Oliver Crisp, which was so good. And, you know, he's, he said he's not a complementarian. He believes in the equal ministry of men and women in the church. And I totally agree with that. It's like, I've got to say, therefore, we are doing something that I actually think was lost from the apostolic age to ours. Because yeah, if you, you see, read Acts with that in mind, it sure looks like there's a bunch of women preaching. Right. Well, and, and for goodness sake, when Paul tells the church leaders, the two church leaders of Philippi to reconcile, they're both women, right? Yodia and Syntyche. And and you might know this thing about in Romans 16, Unia uh, is a female apostle. And the actually the, che- the texts were changed to make her male. I didn't know that, no. Yeah. Uh, so we have already an apostle. That's the highest level of yeah. you know Christian leadership as a woman, Unia, in uh, Romans 16. So so maybe there was early stuff, but it was lost for a long time, yeah. right? And I'm going to say that's better, that we have egalitarian yeah. and feminist approaches to Christian leadership. It was so earlier I, like it was in Acts, but like it's not in the Torah. <laughs> so it, right. you know what I mean? It's <laughs> right. not – we can't just – 
I guess you could say there was a golden age or something. That's slightly different than saying you go back to the very beginning, the garden or whatever. That That's another way of doing it in the garden. Yeah. There's not a whole lot going on in the garden. You don't have a lot of detail. It's highly a poetic language written in an extinct language form that basically we only know because we have things like the Bible <laughs> to compare it to. Right. I mean, it's not like no one speaks that anymore. Whatever. Yeah. I, I mean, so here's my solution. And I, yeah, solution. I, I think, I think the easiest thing, this isn't easy in some like, oh, pejorative, well, if everybody's just got to think this and they'll figure right. it out. But, you know, I think uh, this is, I think, where I'd agree with Brad Jerzak. I believe if I had heard him properly, you don't really resolve universalism biblically because there's some tension in the text. Right. You resolve right. it theologically. And, yes. and Hart would and, say that too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think Hart, I mean, this is where, uh, again, I, I really like Hart a lot. We were talking about this at another point, but I just, some of his tone recently has been a little. A dissonant he's for me. Such a, he's such an <laughs> asshole. It really sir. It does not serve him well. It does I, I not like serve him well. You, you translate my carefully articulated things yeah. into much more colorful. Language. Sure. I don't. I'm no. I'm not going to lose an academic post here, Greg. <laughs> no one's going to fire but, me. But so I, mean, I think I think you resolve the question of universalism based on who God is. And as right. Christians, I am going to say, even in a pluralistic world, I believe that the one God became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. That is how we see and understand God. And so this is where my assertion of imperialism, I I guess I have to take it on, but do it humbly and say, this is how I actually see the deepest reality. This is the most important reality. But what kind of God do we see in Jesus Christ? And I think this was Bart's great point. We see a God who will go all the way to save us to the point of death. You know, this is where Islam and Judaism think that we're off our rocker, right, right as Christians, right. that the God that God would have a son and that God would die. In fact, of course, the Quran rewrites the crucifixion so that Jesus doesn't really die, as you probably know. So, no, I actually don't, didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, it's really fascinating. He It's another person who dies for Jesus, et cetera. But, you know, that's the kind of God we, we know. Theologically, philosophically, whatever you want to say, if that God is going that far for our salvation— what will get in the way of that? If you want to be a universalist, that I think is yeah. the argument. That's the most that's powerful. That's the argument. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I guess that's another way of saying that's how I see it. It's like, well, certainly not going to send Holocaust victims to hell because right. <laughs> they were right. Jews. Like, you know what I mean? Like, or atheists or something like that's insane. Yeah. Uh, that is not the kind of God we're dealing with here. And the only reason... The reason that people believe that God could be like that is not because their rational self has really thought through all the angles. And this is it sounds more pejorative than it is. It's because the plausibility structures of what God is like are determined by what people around them believe. And if most of the people around you, including all your pastors and your parents and whatever, have said this to your whole life, it seems super plausible. Just like if you were born into Westboro Baptist Church, it would seem very plausible that you ought to hold God hates fag signs outside of children's funerals. But as soon as you get exposed outside of that group, it becomes less plausible. You see it for what it is, yada, yada, yada. And uh, if you grew up in a basically Christian evangelical monoculture, generally in the South or Midwest, if you grew up in the States – then still most people all around you, even if you do break out of your little church and talk to your friends at high school, they also believe that God sends people to hell and whatever. Cause so it's just plausible to you. And then as you start to think about it, to use Jonathan's Heights language, as you start engaging your rider instead of just your elephant and you really parse it, well then 
that's why very few theologians affirm eternal conscious torment because you you can't really think about it that hard and still believe it. There are a handful, but most of them end up at the very least being hopeful universalists. There's some way out of it because it is so morally insane to claim, if I can be so bold, that God would infinitely punish people for their finite sins on earth. But we are, we agree on that. So here's right. my, yeah. go ahead. I was going to say, Dan, and, and I know we're, we've talked for quite a while, so I won't okay. add too much, but I think the only issue that I have is the issue of one's the human will. Like, is there a possibility of rejecting it? And we didn't spend much time on annihilationism, but that would be, I think, a way of describing that the human will can still resist God's offer of salvation. I mean, God's just decision a, of salvation, yeah. honestly. Well, you can obviously reject it in this life, but right. we can, of course, point to all kinds of psychological factors and group factors and, you know, the, the type of people who go to their deathbed bitter you know, have generally not had good lives. I mean, right. you know, of yeah. course, you could do some studies to do that. But like, there's a lot of things that explain people's bitterness while they are on this earth. In order to make a claim about rejecting it infinitely, you, you basically just have to make a bunch of claims about the ontological status of human wills after death. I'm not comfortable making very many claims about that. The way that I like to argue it is, if God ever gives us a truly unbounded choice where we are not bound by the decisions our parents made, the particular wiring of our brain we happen to inherit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then that choice, no one would ever not choose God because mm -hmm. if you saw it clearly, you would just never choose the bad thing unless, cause you're not running from pain anymore. You're not, you know, reducing your cognitive dissonance anymore. You're not, you know, you don't have low dopamine receptors. So you're, overeating because other people when they eat this amount of ice cream they get this amount of dopamine and it takes double the double amount for you and now you're obese all this shit like we can you know there's literally a thousand of those ways we could enumerate the way human decisions are made while we're alive those are not truly free choices we are never truly free as a, as human beings on this earth we are contextual we are pulled in a million different ways by different forces the only thing i could say is that if God gives an unbounded, a completely free choice, no one would ever not choose God. Now, mm -hmm. maybe the afterlife includes a bunch of similarly bounded choices. Maybe it's like Hinduism or Buddhism, and it's more cyclical, and we just get a different set of bounded choices. Perhaps it's like that. That's really interesting to consider. Then it kind of comes out in the wash, and so no one's – but then you still have a very difficult problem of how do, how do these experiences connect? How are they in any way the same – entity or soul. I don't know how you do that. Right. I've been wanting to say this because I think it's really helpful. Um, I think Aquinas was right about this and I'm not a huge Aquinas fan, but I did find this really helpful that body and soul is naturally together. So when body and soul are separated, it, it's unnatural, but that does happen at death for the reuniting to occur at the resurrection. And I, this is a little bit of an idiosyncratic viewpoint. I think it's something like what Warren Brown who you know does cognitive science fuller has done might agree with that actually it's god who holds well i think it's consistent with his views anyway it's my view that maybe god actually holds our soul like we don't even have a soul like yeah. it's cloud computing god has our souls it's not in our our hard drive and huh. so it's not like we it, it ends it's it's got with god and then it's reanimated into a new that soul goes in a new body. 
Because I don't even know if we have life by ourselves without God's breath at all times. Well, sure. Theologically, I would agree with that. I mean, you still have issues, though, of like, I'm open to something like that. But the quality of the soul in that instance, then, it can't have a bunch of the stuff that we tend to lump with it, like our moral choices, mm. the habits we, f- the spiritual habits we form. Those are in our brain, man. I mean, like the reason that we have can form habits is because of neuroplasticity. We can rewire our pathways to make it easier to do things. Yeah. So if the soul doesn't have stuff like that, it mm. doesn't have our moral choices, our memories. Now, maybe it does with capital C consciousness in some sense, as I alluded to earlier. I don't know. It gets very complex. Yeah. But yeah. that's a problem for me. So yeah. I could see like I, I'm very comfortable talking about our soul as our unit of infinite value mm-hmm. that God mm-hmm. holds that mm-hmm. that's not connected to the particulars of our body. My moral decisions don't affect my mm-hmm. infinite value as a as a creature of God made in his image. That's interesting. Maybe there's a way there. Maybe there's something like that. I have been finding myself thinking more about some of these Eastern approaches recently because of some of these problems of like, I don't, you know, not, of course not, I would never qualify as Orthodox Hindu or Buddhist or anything like that. But I don't know, there might be something to those models that helps with some of right. the problems, but I haven't right. really spent very much time thinking about it. Maybe that's another, another conversation it because is. it's really it fascinating. Is. Yeah. So here's my last question for you. And I wrote it down at the very beginning as you were just kind of setting the stage and you're totally right that especially people who are raised Christian, they get into more pluralistic settings. And I mean, like we talk about empirically pluralistic, there just are different views. There are people from other faiths, people from other racial groups, et cetera. It tends to lead to a kind of a universalism because we don't want to judge and we want to be sort of humble. I think on a, a good take would be that. My question for you is, should the recognition of empirical pluralism lead towards something more like universalism or is there a leap somewhere in there? Like it, it does seem to lead to that. I tend to think of that as a good thing. The more I recognize the variety around me, the more intellectual humility I'm having, theological humility, I'm going to reject things like God sends the out group to hell and the in group to heaven. You know, that's one way of thinking about it. But it's worth asking if we're being a little too, if we're jumping too quickly to something like universalism, where there's uh, something in between, maybe. I don't know. It's really important to, to reflect on that. And, and to I think to reflect on what Hyde has made us sensitive to, that the group that we're in really influences what we think about, right? What is thinkable, what is not thinkable. That's not Hyde's language, because I think he'd be more articulate. <laughs> but um, we're getting a little bit closer to the experience, I think, of the New Testament, especially in some of the epistles, but probably in the area of Galilee, too, which was very pluralistic. Had a lot of different religious traditions and cultures present because of the salt, the salt road and all that. You know, certainly Paul and Corinth knew a lot of other religious traditions that were going on. He probably was schooled in Stoicism and Tarsus and so on. So it's always the question, can you hold to these convictions, even if there are people who don't agree with you? Or are you just holding to them because, and in a way, it's the cool thing to do in the group. You know, that's what I'm always, I'm always thinking about junior high. Uh, do we do things just because that's what everybody else is doing? And what I'm pushing people to do and in, in myself to do in this pluralistic world is to say, let's take our, our pluralism, but let's also take in that there are some things that we hold to be true, that we actually hold that despite whatever anybody else says, it's true. 
And can we keep our nerve with that? That doesn't just mean closing your ears and saying, I'm not listening to anybody else, but it means, wow, this is actually something that I hold to that's important and that in a pluralistic environment may sound offensive. I do think we have to be ready to have the scandal of the gospel at some level. You know, it's in Puddleglum, you know, in the Chronicles of Narnia, when he's being told by the uh, the witch that there's no Narnia, right? And and they're all being cast the spell. And he's like, that's not true. There really is a Narnia. And he sticks his foot in the fire and the smell of the burning marsh wiggle wakes him up to reality. And I, I think there's something Lewis is getting out there where, you know, there's going to be times when we just will go along with the pluralistic crowd. But at some point, there's got to be a truth that is actually something we're going to hold to, even if nobody else did. And I suppose we want to keep interrogating that, whatever truth we hold to, and making sure we can keep holding to it, despite whatever society or, or group we're in. It's not that we don't listen to people. It's not that we don't learn. And I think we need to do that. I think we need to be sensitive to the people around us. But at some point, there's going to be what we hold to as Christians that just may sound dissonant in the rooms we're in. And we've got to be willing to say that without trying to make it palatable by saying, well, this is what you all believe also. It's to say, you may or not, not believe this, but I hold, I'm holding this to be the actual center of, of life. And for us, I think as Christians, that's the confession that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human, has come to save us and um, has come to call us and claim us as his own. Those are things that I, at the end of the day, I'm going to hold to, um, I hope, no matter what room I'm in. I, I yeah. guess it's that it's that it's that ability to hold the truth, even if there's a pluralistic vision. Just for clarity's sake, so you heard Andrew and I, you know, to the end of that episode where we sort of described our own views, and they were pretty close. You know, we're both pretty robust pluralists, but still committed Christians. Does that qualify under your rubric, or am I potentially at at risk of of doing this myself? Hmm. Well, wow, that's a really humble question. If you don't mind my using that language. Uh, about it, Stop I feel complimenting un- me. <laughs> I almost feel unqualified. To, <laughs> such well, a just give question. me your take. I don't care. It's fine. If if there is a challenge, it's the challenge to you, and I would make it to myself to be careful of, like what you just said, falling into this is a way of solving pluralism and the problem of pluralism. Like, can somebody actually be disastrously wrong? You know what I mean? Like, it, it, let's say hell were true in the way that it's been presented. Could somebody actually miss that and really miss eternal life or something? So I'm hesitant to say, well, that's what you do, but I think it would be a natural thing to fall into. And, well, it's interesting. Uh, there is a little bit of a compensatory thing that I've noticed in myself and, and probably others. I'm open to there being punishment of some sort. Mm-hmm, right. Um, I am fully convinced there's not eternal conscious hell. Right. But if there's punishment, then people would very much like to avoid that. (laughs) It would very much be in their interest to live moral lives such that they don't have to go through that. Of course, there's also the motivation would be equal or this is one of the problems is you can't do any math about it. What's the ratio? How much should I care about serving the poor and loving my neighbor because it makes my life and their life better while we're alive versus what ratio should I care to avoid some version of one of these hells or purgatorial systems where I have to pay for my sins? On the one hand, not uh, wanting to avoid pain is a pretty bad motivator, all things considered, even though it works. In fact, it, it really works. I just recently saw there's not a lot of research yet about COVID, but someone did a study and 
like the only real predictor of people wearing masks and socially distancing is how afraid they are of getting it. Oh uh, my goodness. That's nothing else really predicts it. Like, political affiliation whatever so people will post different kind of memes because of their political affiliation but their behavior only changes if they're actually afraid or not and i would say liberals are more afraid than conservatives based on the media and everything but still so fear works right it it works and so there's really interesting questions there in terms of protecting people I, i get that but since i can't quantify whatever comes after death i have no idea how to weight it compared to real life consequences right, right. so th- I, there's an issue there even if i right. even if i ostensibly agree that there's yeah. going to be some punishment how should that motivate me you know and i suppose i'm i'm also arguing for your position here i would always go back to the god we know in jesus christ the god who will do anything to save us to the point of dying as a being that cannot die right uh, i think brad jerzak said that that from the ancient fathers god becomes incarnate so that god can do the most extreme thing and actually die. And I guess I would trust that God if there is any punishment, that it's going to be for my good. Okay, so that's great. But then (laughs) now I'm back to square one of like not worrying about punishment as a motivator because – don't do it. (laughs) I mean – You know what I'm saying though? So if that's true, then then let's say I fall into this trap that you're worried about folks of my ilk falling into. In what way can I avoid that if I'm not letting – future punishment be the stick, right? Like if I'm only focusing on the carrot of loving one's neighbor, human flourishing, you know, et cetera, like in, in therapy, you know, with my clients, I'm not going to, I guess occasionally we'll want to talk about consequences. Like if you do cheat on your wife, you know, yada, yada, yada. But basically that's not the main thing you want to do. You want to encourage them. You, you find their strengths, you, you know, and of course, there are different schools of thought on that, so that could be wrong. Uh, but that's sort of the orthodoxy today and most psychological training programs. You see the conflict yeah. here? Well, I mean, I would be willing to say that we want to grow as human beings and as spiritual beings, you know, as people who have spirits. And fear of punishment is a lower level of, of human life. I mean, this is Aristotle's yeah. point, so far as I understand it, um, and Aquinas, as so far as he follows him, and Bella, too, by the way, who my wife studied with at Berkeley. To, Follow these guys is like, I know me too. I was not a religion major in my undergrad, but anyway, the point being you start with punishment and reward, but you get to the point of you do things for human flourishing and punishment reward goes back. I mean, you play music, you know what this is like at first you had to practice your scales on your guitar, right? And your fingerings and all that sort of stuff. And you did it because you had to do it, but there's a point you get to, and, and, and you may have been scared of your instructor or sucking on stage, you know, like being terrible on stage and being embarrassed. But at some point you get the, you get to where you play the instrument so well, you do it because you love it, right? You've transcended the punishment reward scheme. And so I hate to say this, but I would make the judgment that if most of us are motivated by punishment reward, we're just not very developed human beings. I'm not saying that ever yeah. completely leaves, but I think what I look for and what I see in the most developed people uh, that I respect and this could be true, by the way, in various religious traditions, is they have gotten to the point where they do things because it coheres with the beauty they see in life and the beauty they want to experience as a human being of, of human flourishing. So I think we would be motivated with the mask wearing because we believe that's going to create human flourishing for the human community and to care for the other, right? But 
I don't well, think it's- it, it might still be correlated to that. Like, for instance, people who are motivated by flourishing, there might be a positive relationship between that and being afraid of the virus because those people are better at understanding expertise. And so they have a proper fear of a mm. menacing, mm. unseen virus. I mean, so so fear of the virus is different than fear of God sending one to hell, I think. Right, right. So we yeah, don't yeah, want to be too careful. We don't want to be too fear. cavalier, right? That's right. a rational fear. Right, uh, right. And yeah. I'm not against fear. I agree with you on that one. And I guess I would say I'm okay with some fear of God. You know, I mean, I think, I'm, as you think you know, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan because I think he got this right. Um, and he has a very interesting conversation about Kant and Aristotle and the problem of pain along these lines that I think I could bring into this is that, you know, ultimately Aslan, his Christ figure, is good, but he's not safe. And I think right. the lack of safety is that this figure might actually change us, right? And right. actually, we might feel fear in, in, in seeing God. But fear not because God's going to punish me on the rack. Right. Um, I would agree with you that the worship of raw power, uh, that's why you might know this also a whitehead thing. You thought the worship of raw power was demonic, right? That is not worship of a God. And I think he's right about that. So if, we, if we're just fearful of, is God going to punish us? I can't find that to be a very motivating reason to be a Christian or to become a Christian. And yeah. I think what we're doing with religion uh, and our application of our ideas is we're, we're giving people a vision for life. And if we don't give them a vision for life that's compelling, why should they take it on? You know what I mean? Why should I take it on? I've got to keep convincing myself that this vision for life is something that I want to keep living. It makes me think of like a lefty progressive universalist who has also come all the way over on politics being like, am I willing to actually like read something by a pro-choice advocate? Mm -hmm. There's a kind of a fear in that because yeah. if I do become, or sorry, pro-life, pro-life, that's, that's what, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Am I willing to read that? Cause if I am convinced by some of it and I become moderately or significantly pro-life, I'm out of step with my group. That's a fear. Um, it's a big fear. I, I have, I recently started, uh, listening to the Joe Rogan experience, partly mm -hmm. out of curiosity because it's the biggest podcast in the world. And I'm curious what people are thinking about. And I, you know, I have only listened to a handful, but I also was afraid because a lot of my liberal podcasters that I like make fun of him. Mm. And mm. I've had to start thinking about why they make fun of him. And right. uh, I'm sure there's some stuff to make fun of. Nobody's perfect. I'm sure he's to their right on many things. But also, they're making fun of him because he's more successful, and they, he, it's scary that he and interviews. And jealous, probably. Well, and also he interviews conservatives, real yeah. conservatives, right? And yeah. sometimes he agrees with them, and that is scary. The more uh, in a bubble you are, and of course, this applies equally to people on, on the right who are scared of ideas on the left, or scared of Rob Bell's book because right. then that might they might lose their membership in their conservative in group, right? I'm increasingly locating this fear less about retribution from God and more about going through the pain of maturation on earth. And it is real pain, cognitive dissonance and the living with it and the testing out unsafe ideas and whatever is actually painful, especially the more worried you are about losing your membership and your identity and all that stuff. And so, I don't know, that's me, yeah. the increasingly Schleiermachian right. version of me, thinking about <laughs> everything through the lens of experience. <laughs> well, I think you're right about that. I think we're all really motivated by our group, and it takes courage not to be purely motivated by that, whether you're liberal or conservative. And I suppose you're teasing out something that I was hearing, 
No, I, I don't want to make it about only the, your podcast because I just I don't really know for sure. But I've heard it in other people that are you know progressive and want to embrace universalism. And if a person really feels like they've gotten to a superior position, I just want them to admit it. You know what I mean? Yeah, just to say yeah. this is a better position. It's better yeah. than ECT. That's fine with me. But but I but the bigger point you're bringing out is we think these things because thinking these things keeps us within the group, um, and that's really important for human motivation. Uh, and I want to be a person, and I believe this is the following Christ, to be a person who sometimes doesn't just follow the group, doesn't also not follow the group <laughs> as a thing. Yeah. Right? That's, that's another weird idea. But just as like, sometimes there's something that's, that is true. Like, I'll die for this. You know, I'll die if everybody around me thinks this is so wrong, they're going to kill me. Because it's true. And I'm holding to it. And I think that's a key part of what it is to be a Christian. And I just want to keep that in play as I think about universalism or, yeah. I don't know, relationship to other religions or politics or whatever. I also I want to be sensitive to the person who's listened to this far and is like, man, I just got out of an unhealthy conservative religious environment. I finally found a new <laughs> environment. And now you're telling me that I'm just doing in-group thinking with my new friends? <laughs> And it, in one sense, it's like, yeah, because that's never over. Like, if it's a yeah. feature of our brain then, it's a feature of our brain now. Right. It's totally. not like we can shed that. Right. I think the best we can do, and uh, this is I'm – t- I'm taking from uh, Alan Jacobs in his book, How to Think. Right. And some I haven't read that book, but him. I know Jacobs oh, a little bit. Yeah. So good and very short. You should read it. Yeah. In 20 – I think he wrote it in 2017 or something, 2016, but in 2020 – you kind of got to find a new group of people who will question all of the orthodoxies, at least the two main ones on any issue, because that's just the moment we're in now. But you do need a group. Like you can't do it alone. I need four or five people that are like my political moderate friends that we can complain about the excesses of the right and the left. I can't just be alone in that. Like I am a social animal. I'm a right. primate, right? So right. Y- there is a sense in which, you know, it's partly about being aware of your in-group biases. It's also about like maybe just creating better groups, you know, or groups where membership is based on better principles and more thoughtful principles or something like that, like higher order, you know, abilities and stuff. It's it's complicated. I don't have an answer for that. But yeah. that's yeah. one of the kind of catch-22 loops I keep finding myself spinning around on. Well, let me just encourage you and affirm. I mean, I loved, again, that you brought in Oliver Crisp, you know, I think because... As a guy, uh, I disagree with on most stuff theologically. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was really great because I was just about to get frustrated with you that every time you talk about reform, it was always what I would say are some theological lightweights. Like Mark Driscoll is no theologian, for example. Right, right, right. Um, I I pick on neo-reformed Right. far more than I talk about more proper reformed theology. Well, and, and there are plenty of people who've been affected by him. So I'm just telling you my perspective, yeah. but it was so great to hear you engage with Oliver. So I guess I'm going to affirm that that's a, that's an example of a good practice. So we're not just in this bubble. Right. And I think that's why we want to have these conversations about universalism, not just with the people who have been burned right. by ECT, yeah. but the people who, you know, don't really care about our setting the rules for them. I think they should. it should mean similar things to us in either of those two settings. Awesome. Well, Greg, we went way over, but that this was such a fun conversation. I am yeah. really excited to listen back to it when it comes out. And 
just sit with some of this stuff some more. I appreciate you challenging me. I appreciate, I'm glad that I immediately knew that we should talk about it and I should not just email you back or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, yeah, man, thanks for your time. I'll, I'll have a link to your work in the show notes. That's great. Well, thank you, Dan, so much. Thanks for your contributions. And I recommend your show all the time. Today's episode was edited by Josh Gilbert. He is available for podcast editing work. His email is in the show notes, as well as a link to some of Greg's work. I didn't do a Patreon ad. Uh, I don't know. I was just kind of tired today. But, you know, there is a Patreon. You can support the show financially. It's five bucks a month or less if you can't afford that, in which case you should email me at youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. But it comes with two exclusive episodes per month and membership in the patron-only Facebook group, patreon.com slash dancoke. There's a link to that in the notes as well. And a link to Ben's show, Faith and Letters. See you next week. <laughs>